Some Particulars Concerning a Lion This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett Charles Dickens' Two Hundredth Anniversary Collection Volume One by Charles Dickens Some Particulars Concerning a Lion we have a great respect for lions in the abstract. In common with most other people, we have heard and read of many instances of their bravery and generosity. We have duly admired that heroic self-denial and charming philanthropy which prompts them never to eat people except when they are hungry, and we have been deeply impressed with a becoming sense of the politeness they are said to display towards unmarried ladies of a certain state. All natural histories teem with anecdotes illustrative of their excellent qualities, and one old spelling-book in particular recounts a touching instance of an old lion, of high moral dignity and stern principle, who felt it his imperative duty to devour a young man who had contracted a habit of swearing, as a striking example to the rising generation. All this is extremely pleasant to reflect upon and indeed says a very great deal in favour of lions as a mass. We are bound to state, however, that such individual lions as we have happened to fall in with have not put forth any very striking characteristics, and have not acted up to the chivalrous character assigned them by their chroniclers. We never saw a lion in what is called his natural state, certainly. That is to say, we have never met a lion out walking in a forest, or crouching in his lair under a tropical sun, waiting till his dinner should happen to come by hot from the baker's. But we have seen some under the influence of captivity, and the pressure of misfortune. And we must say that they appeared to us very apathetic, heavy-headed fellows. The lion at the zoological gardens, for instance. He is all very well. He has an undeniable mane, and looks very fierce. Uh, but, Lord bless us, what of that? The lions of the fashionable world look just as ferocious, and are the most harmless creatures breathing. A box-lobby lion, or a regent-street animal, will put on a most terrible aspect, and roar fearfully if you affront him. But he will never bite, and if you offer to attack him manfully, will fairly turn tail and sneak off. Doubtless these creatures roam about sometimes in herds, and if they meet an especially meek-looking and peaceably disposed fellow, will endeavour to frighten him. But the faintest show of vigorous resistance is sufficient to scare them even then. These are pleasant characteristics, whereas we make it matter of distinct charge against the zoological lion and his brethren at the fairs that they are sleepy, dreamy, sluggish quadrupeds. We do not remember to have ever seen one of them perfectly awake, except at feeding-time. In every respect we uphold the biped lions against their four-footed namesakes, and we boldly challenge controversy upon the subject. With these opinions it may be easily imagined that our curiosity and interest are very much excited the other day, when a lady of our acquaintance called on us and resolutely declined to accept our refusal of her invitation to an evening party. For, said she, I have got a lion coming. We at once retracted our plea of a prior engagement, and became as anxious to go as we had previously been to stay away. 
We went early, and posted ourselves in an eligible part of the drawing-room, from whence we could hope to obtain a full view of the interesting animal. Two or three hours passed, the quadrilles began, the room filled, but no lion appeared. The lady of the house became inconsolable, for it is one of the peculiar privileges of these lions to make solemn appointments and never keep them, when all of a sudden there came a tremendous double rap at the street-door, and the master of the house, after gliding out, unobserved, as he flattered himself, to peep over the banisters, came into the room, rubbing his hands together with great glee, and cried out in a very important voice, "'My dear Mr.'—naming the lion—has this moment arrived.' Upon this all eyes were turned towards the door, and we observed several young ladies, who had been laughing and conversing previously with great gaiety and good humour, grow extremely quiet and sentimental, while some young gentlemen, who had been cutting great figures in the facetious and small-talk way, suddenly sank very obviously in the estimation of the company, and were looked upon with great coldness and indifference. Even the young man who had been ordered from the music-shop to play the pianoforte was visibly affected, and struck several false notes in the excess of his excitement. All this time there was a great talking outside, more than once accompanied by a loud laugh and a cry of, "'Oh, capital! Excellent!' from which we inferred that the lion was jocose, and that these exclamations were occasioned by the transports of his keeper and our host. Nor were we deceived for when the lion at last appeared, we overheard his keeper, who was a little prim man, whisper to several gentlemen of his acquaintance with uplifted hands, and every expression of half-suppressed admiration that—naming the lion again—was in such cue to-night. The lion was a literary one. Of course there were a vast number of people present who had admired his roarings, and were anxious to be introduced to him and very pleasant it was to see them brought up for the purpose, and to observe the patient dignity with which he received all their patting and caressing. This brought forcibly to our mind what we had so often witnessed at country fairs, where the other lions are compelled to go through as many forms of courtesy as they chance to be acquainted with, just as often as admiring parties happen to drop in upon them. While the lion was exhibiting in this way, his keeper was not idle for he mingled among the crowd, and spread his praises most industriously. To one gentleman he whispered some very choice thing that the noble animal had said in the very act of coming upstairs, which of course rendered the mental effort still more astonishing. To another he murmured a hasty account of a grand dinner that had taken place the day before, where twenty-seven gentlemen had got up all at once to demand an extra cheer for the lion and to the ladies he made sundry promises of interceding to procure the majestic brute's sign-manual for their albums. Then there were little private consultations in different corners, relative to the personal appearance and stature of the lion, whether he was shorter than they had expected to see him, or taller, or thinner, or fatter, or younger, or older, whether he was like his portrait, or unlike it and whether the particular shade of his eyes was black, or blue, or hazel, or green, or yellow, or mixture. At all these consultations the keeper assisted, and in short the lion was the sole and single subject of discussion, till they sat him down to whist, and then the people relapsed into their old topics of conversation—themselves and each other. 
We must confess that we looked forward with no slight impatience to the announcement of supper, for if you wish to see a tame lion under particularly favourable circumstances, feeding time is the period of all others to pitch upon. We were therefore very much delighted to observe a sensation among the guests which we well knew how to interpret, and immediately afterwards to behold the lion escorting the lady of the house downstairs. We offered our arm to an elderly female of our acquaintance, who, dear old soul, is the very best person that ever lived to lead down to any meal, for be the room ever so small, or the party ever so large, she is sure, by some intuitive perception of the eligible, to push and pull herself and conduct her close to the best dishes on the table. We say we offered our arm to this elderly female, and descending the stairs shortly after the lion, were fortunate enough to obtain a seat nearly opposite him. Of course the keeper was there already. He had planted himself at precisely that distance from his charge which afforded him a decent pretext for raising his voice, when he addressed him, to so loud a key as could not fail to attract the attention of the whole company, and immediately began to apply himself seriously to the task of bringing the lion out, and putting him through the whole of his manoeuvres. Such flashes of wit as he elicited from the lion! First of all, they began to make puns upon a salt-cellar, and then upon the breast of a fowl, and then upon the trifle but the best jokes of all were decidedly on the lobster salad, upon which latter subject the lion came out most vigorously, and in the opinion of the most competent authorities, quite outshone himself. This is a very excellent mode of shining in society, and is founded, we humbly conceive, upon the classic model of the dialogues between Mr. Punch and his friend the proprietor, wherein the latter takes all the uphill work, and is content to pioneer to the jokes and repartees of Mr. P. himself, who never fails to gain credit and excite much laughter thereby. Whatever it be founded on, however, we recommend it to all lions, present and to come, for in this instance it succeeded to admiration, and perfectly dazzled the whole body of hearers. When the salt-cellar, and the fowl's breast, and the trifle, and the lobster-salad were all exhausted, and could not afford standing-room for another solitary witticism, the keeper performed that very dangerous feat which is still done with some of the caravan-lions, although in one instance it terminated fatally, of putting his head in the animal's mouth, and placing himself entirely at its mercy. Boswell frequently presents a melancholy instance of the lamentable results of this achievement, and other keepers and jackals have been terribly lacerated for their daring. It is due to our lion to state that he condescended to be trifled with in the most gentle manner, and finally went home with the showman in a hack-cab, perfectly peaceable, but slightly fuddled. Being in a contemplative mood, we were led to make some reflections upon the character and conduct of this genus of lions as we walked homewards, and we were not long in arriving at the conclusion that our former impression in their favour was very much strengthened and confirmed by what we had recently seen. While the other lions receive company and compliments in a sullen, moody, not to say snarling manner, these appear flattered by the attentions that are paid them. While those conceal themselves to the utmost of their power from the vulgar gaze, these caught the popular eye, and unlike their brethren, whom nothing short of compulsion will move to exertion, are ever ready to display their acquirements to the wandering throng. We have known bears of undoubted ability, who, when the expectations of a large audience have been wound up to the utmost pitch, have peremptorily refused to dance. 
well-taught monkeys, who have unaccountably objected to exhibit on the slack wire, and elephants of unquestioned genius, who have suddenly declined to turn the barrel-organ. But we never once knew or heard of a bipaired lion, literary or otherwise, and we state it as a fact which is highly creditable to the whole species, who, occasion offering, did not seize with avidity on any opportunity which was afforded him, of performing to his heart's content on the first violin. End of Some Particulars Concerning a Lion When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To be read at dusk. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1. To be read at dusk by Charles Dickens. One, two, three, four, five. There were five of them. Five couriers, sitting on a bench outside the convent, on the summit of the great St. Bernard in Switzerland, looking at the remote heights stained by the setting sun, as if a mighty quantity of red wine had been broached upon the mountain-top, and had not yet had time to sink into the snow. This is not my simile. It was made for the occasion by the stoutest courier, who was a German, None of the others took any more notice of it than they took of me, sitting on another bench on the other side of the convent door, smoking my cigar like them, and, also like them, looking at the reddened snow, and at the lonely shed hard by, where the bodies of belated travellers, dug out of it, slowly wither away, knowing no corruption in that cold region. The wine upon the mountain-top soaked in as we looked, the mountain became white, the sky a very dark blue, the wind rose, and the air turned piercing cold, the five couriers buttoned their rough coats. There being no safer man to imitate in all such proceedings than a courier, I buttoned mine. The mountain in the sunset had stopped the five couriers in a conversation. It is a sublime sight, likely to stop conversation." the mountain being now out of the sunset, they resumed. Not that I had heard any part of their previous discourse, for indeed I had not then broken away from the American gentleman in the traveller's parlour of the convent, who, sitting with his face to the fire, had undertaken to realise to me the whole progress of events which had led to the accumulation, by the Honourable Ananias Dodger, of one of the largest acquisitions of dollars ever made in our country." "'My God!' said the Swiss courier, speaking in French, which I do not hold, as some authors appear to do, to be such an all-sufficient excuse for a naughty word that I have only to write it in that language to make it innocent. "'If you talk of ghosts—' "'But I don't talk of ghosts,' said the German. "'Of what, then?' asked the Swiss. "'If I knew of what, then,' said the German, "'I should probably know a great deal more.' 
It was a good answer, I thought, and it made me curious. So I moved my position to that corner of my bench which was nearest to them, and leaning my back against the convent wall, heard perfectly, without appearing to attend. "'Thunder and lightning!' said the German, warming. "'When a certain man is coming to see you unexpectedly, and, without his own knowledge, sends some invisible messenger, to put the idea of him into your head all day, what do you call that? When you walk along a crowded street, at Frankfurt, Milan, London, Paris, and think that a passing stranger is like your friend Heinrich, and then that other passing stranger is like your friend Heinrich, and so begin to have a strange foreknowledge that presently you'll meet your friend Heinrich, which you do, though you believed him at Trieste, what do you call that? It is not uncommon either, murmured the Swiss and the other three. Uncommon, said the German, it's as common as cherries in the Black Forest, it's as common as macaroni at Naples. And Naples reminds me, when the old Marchesa Sanzanima shrieks at a card party on the Chiaja, as I heard and saw her, for it happened in a Bavarian family of mine, and I was overlooking the service that evening, I say, when the old Marchesa starts up at the card-table, white through her rouge, and cries, My sister in Spain is dead, I felt her cold touch on my back. And when that sister is dead at that moment, what do you call that? or when the blood of San Gennaro liquefies at the request of the clergy, as all the world knows that it does regularly once a year, in my native city, said the Neapolitan courier after a pause, with a comical look, what do you call that? That, cried the German, well, I think I know a name for that. Miracle, said the Neapolitan, with the same sly face. The German merely smoked and laughed, and they all smoked and laughed. Bah, said the German presently, I speak of things that really do happen. When I want to see the conjurer, I pay to see a professed one and have my money's worth. Very strange things do happen without ghosts. Ghosts, Giovanni Baptista, tell your story of the English bride. There's no ghost in that, but something full as strange. Will any man tell me what? As there was a silence among them, I glanced around. He whom I took to be Baptista was lighting a fresh cigar. He presently went on to speak. He was a Genoese, as I judged. The story of the English bride, said he. Basta, one not ought to call so slight a thing a story. Well, it's all one, but it's true. Observe me well, gentlemen, it's true. That which glitters is not always gold, but what I am going to tell is true. He repeated this more than once. Ten years ago I took my credentials to an English gentleman at Long's Hotel, in Bond Street, London, who was about to travel. It might be for one year, it might be for two. He approved of them, likewise of me. He was pleased to make inquiry. The testimony that he received was favorable. He engaged me by the six months, and my entertainment was generous. He was young, handsome, very happy. He was enamoured of a fair young English lady, with a sufficient fortune, and they were going to be married. It was the wedding trip, in short, that we were going to take. For three months' rest in the hot weather, it was early summer then, he had hired an old place on the Riviera, at an easy distance from my city, Genoa, on the road to Nice. 
Did I know that place? Yes, I told him, I knew it well. It was an old palace with great gardens. It was a little bare, and it was a little dark and gloomy, being close surrounded by trees. But it was spacious, ancient, grand, and on the seashore. He said it had been so described to him exactly, and he was well pleased that I knew it. For its being a little bare of furniture, all such places were. For its being a little gloomy, he had hired it principally for the gardens, and he and my mistress would pass the summer weather in their shade. "'So all goes well, Baptista?' said he. "'Indubitably, Signore, very well.' We had a travelling chariot for our journey, newly built for us, and in all respects complete. All we had was complete, we wanted for nothing. The marriage took place. They were happy, I was happy, seeing all so bright, being so well situated, going to my own city, teaching my language in the rumble to the maid, la bella Carolina, whose heart was gay with laughter, who was young and rosy. The time flew but I observed, listen to this, I pray, and here the courier dropped his voice, I observed my mistress sometimes brooding in a manner very strange, in a frightened manner, in an unhappy manner, with a cloudy, uncertain alarm upon her. I think that I began to notice this when I was walking up hills by the carriage side, and master had gone on in front. At any rate, I remember that it impressed itself on my mind one evening in the south of France, when she called to me to call Master back, and when he came back and walked for a long way, talking encouragingly and affectionately to her, with his hand upon the open window and hers in it. Now and then he laughed in a merry way, as if he were bantering her out of something. By and by she laughed, and then all went well again. It was curious. I asked La Bella Carolina, the pretty little one, was mistress unwell? No. Out of spirits? No. Fearful of bad roads or brigands? No. And what made it more mysterious was, the pretty little one would not look at me in giving answer, but would look at the view. But one day she told me the secret. If you must know, said Carolina, I find, from what I have overheard, that mistress is haunted. How haunted? By a dream. What dream? By a dream of a face. For three nights before her marriage she saw a face in a dream, always the same face, and only one. A terrible face? No, the face of a dark, remarkable-looking man, in black, with black hair and a grey moustache, a handsome man except for a reserved and secret air, not a face she ever saw, nor at all like a face she ever saw, doing nothing in the dream but looking at her fixedly, out of darkness. Does the dream come back? Never, the recollection of it is all her trouble. And why does it trouble her? Carolina shook her head. That's master's question, said La Bella. She don't know, she wonders why herself, but I heard her tell him only last night that if she was to find a picture of that face in our Italian house, which she is afraid she will, she did not know how she would ever bear it. Upon my word I was fearful after this, said the Genoese courier, of our coming to the old palazzo, lest some such ill-starred picture should happen to be there. I knew there were many there, 
and as we got nearer and nearer to the place i wished the whole gallery in the crater of vesuvius to mend the matter it was a stormy dismal evening when we at last approached that part of the riviera it thundered and the thunder of my city and its environs rolling among the high hills is very loud the lizards ran in and out of the chinks in the broken stone wall of the garden as if they were frightened the frogs bubbled and croaked their loudest the sea wind moaned and the wet trees dripped and the lightning body of san lorenzo how it lightened we all know what an old palace in or near genoa is how time and the sea air have blotted it how the drapery painted on the outer walls has peeled off in great flakes of plaster how the lower windows are darkened with rusty bars of iron how the courtyard is overgrown with grass how the outer buildings are dilapidated how the whole pile seems devoted to ruin our palazzo was one of the true kind it had been shut up close for months months years it had an earthy smell like a tomb the scent of the orange trees on the broad back terrace and one of the lemons ripening on the wall and of some shrubs that grew around a broken fountain had got into the house somehow and had never been able to get out again there was in every room an aged smell grown faint with confinement it pined in all the cupboards and drawers in the little rooms of communication between great rooms it was stifling if you turned a picture to come back to the pictures there it still was clinging to the wall behind the frame like a sort of bat the lattice blinds were closed shut all over the house there were two ugly gray old women in the house to take care of it one of them with a spindle who stood winding and mumbling in the doorway and who would as soon have let in the devil as the air master mistress la bella carolina and i went all through the palazzo i first went though i have named myself last opening the windows and the lattice blinds and shaking down on myself splashes of rain and scraps of mortar and now and then a dozing mosquito or a monstrous fat blotchy genoese spider when i had let the evening light into a room master mistress and la bella carolina entered then we looked round at all the pictures and i went forward again into another room mistress secretly had a great fear of meeting with the likeness of that face we all had but there was no such thing the madonna and bambino san francisco san sebastiano venus santa caterina angels brigands friars temples at sunset battles white horses forests apostles doges all my old acquaintances many times repeated yes dark handsome man in black reserved and secret with black hair and gray mustache looking fixedly at mistress out of darkness no at last we got through all the rooms and all the pictures and came out into the gardens they were pretty well kept being rented by a gardener and were large and shady in one place there was a rustic theatre open to the sky the stage a green slope the coulisses three entrances upon a side sweet-smelling leafy greens mistress moved her bright eyes even there as if she looked to see the face come in upon the scene but all was well now clara master said in a low voice you see that it is nothing you are happy mistress was much encouraged 
she soon accustomed herself to that grim palazzo and would sing and play the harp and copy the old pictures and stroll with master under the green trees and vines all day she was beautiful he was happy he would laugh and say to me mounting his horse for his spring ride before the heat all goes well baptista yes signore thank god very well we had no company i took la bella to the duomo and annunciata to the cafe to the opera to the village festa to the public garden to the day theatre and to the marionetti the pretty little one was charmed with all she saw she learnt italian heavens miraculously was mistress quite forgetful of that dream i asked carolina sometimes nearly said la bella almost it was wearing out one day master received a letter and called me baptista signore a gentleman who is presented to me will dine here to-day he is called the signor delambra let me dine like a prince it was an odd name i did not know that name but there had been many noblemen and gentlemen pursued by austria on political suspicions lately and some names had changed perhaps this was one altro delambra was as good a name to me as another when the signor delambra came to dinner said the genoese courier in a low voice into which he had subsided once before i showed him into the reception-room the great sala of the old palazzo master received him with cordiality and presented him to mistress as she rose her face changed she gave a cry and fell upon the marble floor then i turned my head to the signor delambra and saw that he was dressed in black and had a reserved and secret air and was a dark remarkable-looking man with black hair and a grey moustache master raised mistress in his arms and carried her to her own room where i sent la bella carolina straight la bella told me afterwards that mistress was nearly terrified to death and that she wandered in her mind about her dream all night master was vexed and anxious almost angry and yet full of solicitude the signor delambra was a courtly gentleman and spoke with great respect and sympathy of mistress's being so ill the african wind had been blowing for some days they had told him at his hotel of the maltese cross and he knew that it was often hurtful he hoped the beautiful lady would recover soon he begged permission to retire and to renew his visit when he should have the happiness of hearing that she was better master would not allow of this and they dined alone he withdrew early next day he called at the gate on horseback to inquire for mistress he did so two or three times in that week what i observed myself and what la bella carolina told me united to explain to me that master had now set his mind on curing mistress of her fanciful terror he was all kindness but was sensible and firm he reasoned with her that to encourage such fancies was to invite melancholy if not madness that it rested with herself to be herself that if she once resisted her strange weakness so successfully as to receive the signor delambra as an english lady would receive any other guest it was for ever conquered to make an end the signore came again and mistress received him without marked distress though with constraint and apprehension still and the evening passed serenely 
Master was so delighted with this change, and so anxious to confirm it, that the Signor Delambra became a constant guest. He was accomplished in pictures, books, and music, and his society in any grim palazzo would have been welcome. I used to notice many times that Mistress was not quite recovered. She would cast down her eyes and droop her head before the Signor Delambra, or would look at him with a terrified and fascinated glance, as if his presence had some evil influence or power over her. Turning from her to him, I used to see him in the shaded gardens, or the large half-lighted sala, looking, as I might say, fixedly upon her out of darkness. But truly I had not forgotten La Bella Carolina's words describing the face in the dream. After his second visit I heard Master say, "'Now see, my dear Clara, it's over. Delambra has come and gone, and your apprehension is broken like glass.' "'Will he, will he ever come again?' asked Mistress. "'Again? Why, surely, over and over again. Are you cold?' she shivered. "'No, dear, but he terrifies me. Are you sure that he need come again?' "'The surer for the question, Clara,' replied Master cheerfully. But he was very hopeful of her complete recovery now, and grew more and more so every day. She was beautiful, he was happy.' All goes well, Baptista? he would say to me again. Yes, signore, thank God, very well. We were all, said the Genoese courier, constraining himself to speak a little louder, we were all at Rome for the carnival. I had been out all day with a Sicilian, a friend of mine, and a courier, who was there with an English family. As I returned at night to our hotel, I met the little Carolina, who never stirred from home alone, running distractedly along the corso. "'Carolina, what's the matter?' "'Oh, Baptista, oh, for the Lord's sake, where is my mistress?' "'Mistress, Carolina?' "'Gone since morning. Told me when Master went out on his day's journey not to call her, for she was tired with not resting in the night, having been in pain, and would lie in bed until the evening, then get up refreshed. She is gone, she is gone. Master has come back, broken down the door, and she is gone. My beautiful, my good, my innocent mistress. The pretty little one so cried and raved and tore herself that I could not have held her, but for her swooning on my arm as if she had been shot. Master came up, in manner, face, or voice, no more the master that I knew than I was he. He took me, I laid the little one upon her bed in the hotel, and left her with the chamber women, in a carriage, furiously through the darkness, across the desolate Campagna. When it was day and we stopped at a miserable post-house, all the horses had been hired twelve hours ago, and sent away in different directions. Mark me, by the Signor Delambra, who had passed there in a carriage with a frightened English lady crouching in one corner. I never heard, said the Genoese courier, drawing a long breath, that she was ever traced beyond that spot. All I know is that she vanished into infamous oblivion, with the dreaded face beside her that she had seen in her dream. "'What do you call that?' said the German courier triumphantly. "'Ghosts! There are no ghosts there! What do you call this that I am going to tell you? Ghosts! There are no ghosts here!' I took an engagement once, pursued the German courier, 
with an English gentleman, elderly and a bachelor, to travel through my country, my fatherland. He was a merchant who traded with my country and knew the language, but who had never been there since he was a boy, as I judge, some sixty years before. His name was James, and he had a twin brother John, also a bachelor. Between these brothers there was a great affection. They were in business together at Goodman's Fields, but they did not live together. Mr. James dwelt in Poland Street, turning out of Oxford Street, London. Mr. John resided by Epping Forest. Mr. James and I were to start for Germany in about a week. The exact day depended on business. Mr. John came to Poland Street, where I was staying in the house, to pass that week with Mr. James. But he said to his brother on the second day, I don't feel very well, James. There's not much the matter with me, but I think I am a little gouty. I'll go home and put myself under the care of my old housekeeper, who understands my ways. If I get quite better, I'll come back and see you before you go. If I don't feel well enough to resume my visit where I leave it off, why, you will come and see me before you go. Mr. James, of course, said he would, and they shook hands, both hands as they always did and Mr. John ordered out his old-fashioned chariot and rumbled home. It was on the second night after that, that is to say, the fourth in the week, when I was awoke out of my sound sleep by Mr. James coming to my bedroom in his flannel gown with a lighted candle. He sat upon the side of my bed, and looking at me said, Wilhelm, I have reason to think I have got some strange illness upon me. I then perceived that there was a very unusual expression on his face. "'Wilhelm,' said he, "'I am not afraid or ashamed to tell you what I might be afraid or ashamed to tell another man. You come from a sensible country, where mysterious things are inquired into, and are not settled to have been weighed and measured, or to have been unweighable and unmeasurable, or in either case to have been completely disposed of, for all time,' ever so many years ago. I have just now seen the phantom of my brother. I confess, said the German courier, that it gave me a little tingling of the blood to hear it. I have just now seen, Mr. James repeated, looking full at me, that I might see how collected he was, the phantom of my brother John. I was sitting up in bed, unable to sleep, when it came into my room in a white dress, and regarding me earnestly, passed up to the end of the room, glanced at some papers on my writing-desk, turned, and still looking earnestly at me as it passed the bed, went out at the door. Now I am not in the least mad, and I am not in the least disposed to invest that phantom with any external existence out of myself. I think it is a warning to me that I am ill, and I think I had better be bled. I got out of bed directly, said the German courier, and began to get on my clothes, begging him not to be alarmed, and telling him that I would go myself to the doctor. I was just ready when we heard a loud knocking and ringing at the street door. My room being an attic at the back, and Mr. James's being the second-floor room in the front, we went down to his room and put up the window to see what was the matter. "'Is that Mr. James?' said a man below, falling back to the opposite side of the way to look up. "'It is,' said Mr. James, "'and you are my brother's man, Robert.' "'Yes, sir. I am sorry to say, sir, that Mr. John is ill. He is very bad, sir. It is even feared that he may be lying at the point of death. 
he wants to see you sir i have a chaise here pray come to him pray lose no time mr james and i looked at one another wilhelm said he this is strange i wish you to come with me i helped him to dress partly there and partly in the chaise and no grass grew under the horse's iron shoes between poland street and the forest now mind said the german courier i went with mr james into his brother's room and i saw and heard myself what follows his brother lay upon his bed at the upper end of a long bedchamber his old housekeeper was there and others were there i think three others were there if not four and they had been with him since early in the afternoon he was in white like the figure necessarily so because he had his nightdress on he looked like the figure necessarily so because he looked earnestly at his brother when he saw him come into the room but when his brother reached the bedside he slowly raised himself in bed and looking full upon him said these words james you have seen me before to-night and you know it and so died i waited when the german courier ceased to hear something said of this strange story the silence was unbroken i looked round and the five couriers were gone so noiselessly that the ghostly mountain might have absorbed them into its eternal snows by this time i was by no means in a mood to sit alone in that awful scene with the chill air coming solemnly upon me or if i may tell the truth to sit alone anywhere so i went back into the convent parlour and finding the american gentleman still disposed to relate the biography of the honourable ananias dodger heard it all out End of To Be Read at Dusk The Ghost of the Late Mr. James Barber This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jessa Mills Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1 The Ghost of the Late Mr. James Barber a yarn ashore by charles dickens luck nonsense there is no such thing life is not a game of chance any more than chess is if you lose you have no one but yourself to blame this was said by a young lieutenant in the royal navy to a middle-aged midshipman his elder brother do you mean to say that luck had nothing to do with fine gentleman bobbin passing for lieutenant and my being turned back was the rejoinder bobbin though a dandy is a good seaman and and the speaker looked another way and hesitated i am not you would add if you had courage but i say i am and a better seaman than bobbin practically perhaps for you are ten years older in the service but it was in the theoretical part of seamanship which is equally important that you broke down before the examiners continued the younger officer in tones of earnest but sorrowful reproach you never would study i'll tell you what it is master ferdinand said the elder middy not without a show of displeasure i don't think this is the correct sort of conversation to be going on between two brothers after a five years separation the young lieutenant laid his hand soothingly on his brother's arm and entreated him to take what he said in good part well well rejoined the middy with a laugh half forced take care what you are about or by jove i'll inform against you what for 
why for preaching without a license besides you are once as bad as you pretend i am i own it with sorrow but i was warned in time by the wretched end of poor james barber of whom asked the elder brother starting back as he pushed his glass along the table you don't mean jovial jemmy as we used to call him once my messmate in the brig rollock yes i do what dead yes why it was one of our great delights when in harbour and on shore to go the rounds as he called it with jovial jemmy he understood life from stem to stern from truck to keel he knew everybody from the first lord downwards i have seen him recognised by the duke one minute and the next pick up with a strolling player and familiarly treat him at a tavern he once took me to a quadrille party at the duchess of durrington's where he seemed to know and be known to everybody present and then adjourned to the cider cellars where he was equally intimate with all sorts of queer characters though a favourite among the aristocracy he was equally welcome to less exclusive societies he was brother past master warden noble grand or president of all sorts of lodges and fraternities uncommonly knowing was jemmy in all sorts of club and fashionable gossip he knew who gave the best dinners and was always invited to the best balls he was a capital judge of champagne and when he betted upon a horse race everybody backed him he could hum all the fashionable songs and was the fourth man who could dance the polka when it was first imported then he was as profound in bottled stout welsh rabbits burton ale devilled kidneys and bowls of bishop as he was in roman punch french cookery and italian singers afloat he was the soul of fun he got up all our private theatricals told all the best stories and sung comic songs that made even the purser laugh an extent and variety of knowledge and accomplishments said lieutenant fid which had the precise effect of blasting his prospects in life he was as you remember at last dismissed the service for intemperance and incompetence when did you see him last what alive inquired ferdinand fid changing countenance of course surely you do not mean to insinuate that you have seen his ghost the lieutenant was silent and the midshipman took a deep draught of his favourite mixture equal portions of rum and water and hinted to his younger brother the lieutenant the expediency of immediately confiding the story to the marines for he declined to credit it he then ventured another recommendation which was that ferdinand should throw the impotent temperance tipple he was then imbibing over the side of the ship which meant the tavern of that name in greenwich at the open bow window of which they were then sitting and clear his intellects by something stronger i can afford to be laughed at said the younger fid because i have gained immeasurably by the delusion if it be one but if ever there was a ghost i have seen the ghost of james barber i like yourself and he was nearly ruined by love of amusement and intemperance when he or whatever else it might have been came to my aid let us hear i see i am in for a ghost story Well it was eighteen forty one when i came home in the arrow with dispatches from the coast of africa you were lying in the tagus in the bobstay ours you know was rather a thirsty station a man inclined for it comes home from the slaving coasts with the determination to make up his leeway i did mine with a vengeance as usual i looked up jovial jemmy twas easy to find him if you knew where to go i did know and went he had by that time got tired of his more aristocratic friends respectability was too slow for him so i found him presiding over the philanthropic raspers at the union jack he received me with open arms 
and took me, as you say, the rounds. I can't recall that week's dissipation without a shudder. We rushed about from ball to tavern, from theatre to supper-room, from club to gin-palace, as if our lives depended on losing not a moment. We had not time to walk, so we galloped about in cabs. On the fourth night, when I was beginning to feel knocked up, and tired of the same songs, the same quadrilles, the bad whisky, the suffocating tobacco smoke, and the morning's certain and desperate penalties, I remarked to Jemmy that it was a miracle how he had managed to weather it for so many years. What a hardship you would deem it, I added, if you were obliged to go the same weary round from one year's end to another. What did he say to that? asked Philip. Why, I never saw him so taken aback. He looked quite fiercely at me and replied, I am obliged. How did he make that out? Why, he had tippled and dissipated his constitution into such a state that use had become second nature. Excitement was his natural condition, and he dared not become quite sober for fear of a total collapse, or dropping down like a shot in the water. The midshipman had his glass in his hand, but forbore to taste it. Well, what then? The rounds lasted two nights longer. I was fairly beaten. Cast iron could not have stood it. I was prostrated in bed with fever, and worse. Ferdinand was agitated, and took a large draught of his lemonade. Well, well, you need not enlarge upon that, replied Phil Fid, raising his glass towards his lips, but again thinking better of it. I heard how bad you were from Seaton, who shaved your head. I had scarcely recovered when the arrow was ordered back, and I made a vow. Took the pledge, perhaps, interjected the mid, with a slight curl of his lip. No, I determined to work more and play less. We had a capital naval instructor aboard, and our commander was as good an officer as ever trod the deck. I studied, a little too hard, perhaps, for I was laid up again. The arrow was, as usual, as good as her name, and we shot across to Jamaica in five weeks. One evening, as we were lying in Kingston Harbour, Seaton, who had come over to join the Commodore as full surgeon, told me what he had never ventured to divulge before. What was that? Why, that on the very day I left London, James Barber died of a frightful attack of delirium tremens. Poor Jemmy, said the elder Fid sorrowfully, taking a long pull of consolation from his rummer. Little did I think, while singing some of your best songs off Bellum Castle, that I had seen you for the last time. I hadn't seen him for the last time, returned the lieutenant, with awful significance. Philip assumed a careless air, and said, Go on. We were ordered home in 1845, and paid off in January. I went to Portsmouth, was examined, and passed as lieutenant. This allusion to his brother's better condition made poor Philip look rather blank. On being confirmed at the Admiralty, continued Ferdinand, I had to give a dinner to the Arrows, which I did at the Salopian, Charing Cross. In the excess of my joy at promotion, my determination of temperance and avoidance of what is called society was swamped. I kept it up once more. I went the rounds, and accepted all the dinner, supper, and ball invitations I could get, invariably ending each morning in one of the old haunts of dissipation. Old associations with James Barber returned, and like causes produced similar effects. One morning, while maundering home, I began to feel the same wild confusion as had previously commenced my dreadful malady. Ah, a little touched in the top hamper. It was just daylight. Thinking to cool myself, I jumped into a wherry to get pulled down here to Greenwich. Of course you were not quite sober. Don't ask. I do not like even to allude to my sensations, for fear of recalling them. 
my brain seemed in a flame the boat appeared to be going at the rate of twenty miles an hour fast as we were cleaving the current i heard my name distinctly called out i reconnoitred but could see nobody i looked over on one side of the gunwale and while doing so felt something touch me from the other i felt a chill i turned round and saw whom asked the midshipman holding his breath what seemed to be james barber was he wet as dry as you are i summoned courage to speak hello some mistake i exclaimed not at all was the reply i'm james barber don't be frightened i'm harmless but i know what you are going to say interrupted the intruder seaton did not deceive you i am only an occasional visitor up here this brought me up with a round turn and i had sense enough to wish my friend would vanish as he came where shall we land you i asked oh anywhere it don't matter i have got to be out every night and all night and the nights are plaguy long just now i could not muster a word third fid continued the voice which now seemed about fifty fathoms deep and fast as we were dropping down the stream the boat gave a heel to starboard as if she had been broadsided by a tremendous wave third fid you recollect how i used to kill time how i sang drank danced and supped all night long and then slept and soda-watered it all day you remember what a happy fellow i seemed fools like yourself thought i was so but i say again i wasn't growled the voice letting itself down a few fathoms deeper often and often i would have given the world to have been a market gardener or a dealer in chickweed while roaring he is a jolly good fellow and we won't go home till morning as i emerged with a group from some tavern into covent garden market but i'm punished fearfully for my sins now what do you think i have got to do every night of my never mind what do you think is now marked out as my dreadful punishment well to walk the earth i suppose said i no to paddle about in the thames from sunset to sunrise worse ha ha his laugh sounded like the booming of a gong i only wish my doom was merely to be a mudlark no no i'm condemned to rush about from one evening party and public house to another at the former i am bound for a certain term on each night to dance all the quadrilles and a few of the polkas and waltzes with clumsy partners and then i have to eat stale pastry and tough poultry before i am let off from that place after i am bound to go to some cellar or singing place to listen to hail smiling morn minheer van dunk the monks of old happy land imitations of the london actors and to hear a whole canto of dreary extempore verses i must also smoke a dozen of cigars knowing as in my present condition i must know what they are made of the whole to end on each night with unlimited brandy british and water and eternal intoxication oh f f be warned take my advice keep up your resolution and don't do it again when afloat drink nothing stronger than purse's tea when on shore be temperate in your pleasures don't turn night into day don't exchange wholesome amusements for rabid debauchery robust health for disease and well i won't mention it when afloat study your profession and don't get cashiered and cold-shouldered as i was promise me nay you must swear at this word i thought i heard a gurgling sound in the water if i can get six solemn pledges before the season's over 
I'm only to go these hurried rounds during the meeting of Parliament. Will you swear? Again urged the voice, with persuasive agony. I was just able to comply. Ten thousand thanks, were the next words I heard. I'm off, for there is an awful pint of pale ale, a chop, and a glass of brandy and water overdue yet, and I must devour them at the shades. We were then close to London Bridge. Don't let the waterman pull to shore. I can get there without troubling him. I remember no more. When sensation returned, I was in bed, in this very house, a shade worse than I had been from the previous attack. That, said Philip, who had left his tumbler untasted, must have been when you had your head shaved for the second time. Exactly so. And you really believe it was jovial James' ghost? inquired Fid, earnestly. Would it be rational to doubt it? Philip rose and paced the room in deep thought for several minutes. He cast two or three earnest looks at his brother, and a few longing ones at his glass. In the course of his cogitation he groaned out more than once an apostrophe to poor James Barber. At length he declared his mind was made up. Third, he said, I told you a while ago to throw your lemonade over the side of the ship. Don't. Souse out my grog instead. The lieutenant did as he was bid. And now, said Fid the Elder, ring for soda water, for one must drink something. Last year it was my own good fortune to sail with Mr. Philip Fid in the bomb bottle, 74. He is not exactly a teetotaler, but he never drinks spirits, and will not touch wine unmixed with water, for fear of its interfering with his studies, at which he is, with the assistance of the naval instructor, who is also the chaplain, assiduous. He is our first mate, and the smartest officer in the ship. Seaton is our surgeon. One day, after a cheerful wardroom dinner, of which Fid was a guest, while we were at anchor in the Bay of Cadiz, the conversation happened to turn upon jovial Jemmy's apparition, which had become the best authenticated ghost story in Her Majesty's naval service. On that occasion, Seaton undertook to explain the mystery upon medical principles. "'The fact is,' he said, "'what the commander of the Arrow saw,' Ferdinand had by this time got commissioned in his old ship, "'was a spectrum, produced by that morbid condition of the brain, which is brought on by the immoderate use of stimulants, and by dissipation. We call it transient monomania. I could show you dozens of such ghosts in the books, if you only had the patience while I turned them up.' Everybody declared that was unnecessary. We would take the doctor's word for it, though I feel convinced not a soul besides the chaplain and myself had one iota of his faith shaken in the real presence of jovial Jemmy's post-mortem appearance to fit the younger. Ghost or no ghost, however, the story had had the effect of converting Philip Fid from one of the most intemperate and inattentive to one of the soberest and best of Her Majesty's officers. May his promotion be steady. End of The Ghost of the Late Mr. James Barber Recording by Jason Mills The Amusements of the People, Number One This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Mary Schneider charles dickens two hundredth anniversary collection volume one the amusements of the people number one by charles dickens
as one half of the world is said not to know how the other half lives so it may be affirmed that the upper half of the world neither knows nor greatly cares how the lower half amuses itself believing that it does not care mainly because it does not know we purpose occasionally recording a few facts on this subject the general character of the lower class of dramatic amusements is a very significant sign of a people and a very good test of their intellectual condition we design to make our readers acquainted in the first place with a few of our experiences under this head in the metropolis it is probable that nothing will ever root out from among the common people an innate love they have for dramatic entertainment in some form or other it would be a very doubtful benefit to society we think if it could be rooted out the polytechnic institution in regent street where an infinite variety of ingenious models are exhibited and explained and where lectures comprising a quantity of useful information on many practical subjects are delivered is a great public benefit and a wonderful place but we think a people formed entirely in their hours of leisure by polytechnic institutions would be an uncomfortable community we would rather not have to appeal to the generous sympathies of a man of five-and-twenty in respect of some affliction of which he had no personal experience who had passed all his holidays when a boy among cranks and cog-wheels we should be more disposed to trust him if he had been brought into occasional contact with a maid and a magpie if he had made one or two diversions into the forest of bondy or even had gone the length of a christmas pantomime there is a range of imagination in most of us which no amount of steam-engines will satisfy and which the great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations itself will probably leave unappeased the lower we go the more natural it is that the best relished provision for this should be found in dramatic entertainments as at once the most obvious the least troublesome and the most real of all the escapes of the literal world joe whelks of the new cut lambeth is not much of a reader has no great store of books no very commodious room to read in no very decided inclination to read and no power at all of presenting vividly before his mind's eye what he read about but put joe in the gallery of the victoria theatre show him doors and windows in the scene that will open and shut and that people can get in and out of tell him a story with these aids and by the help of live men and women dressed up confiding to him their innermost secrets in voices audible half a mile off and joe will unravel a story through all its entanglements and sit there as long after midnight as you have anything left to show him accordingly the theatres to which mr whelks resorts are always full and whatever changes of fashion the drama knows elsewhere it is always fashionable in the new cut the question then might not unnaturally arise one would suppose whether mr whelks education is at all susceptible of improvement through the agency of his theatrical tastes how far it is improved at present our readers shall judge for themselves in affording them the means of doing so 
we wish to disclaim any grave imputation on those who are concerned in ministering to the dramatic gratification of mr whelks heavily taxed wholly unassisted by the state deserted by the gentry and quite unrecognized as a means of public instruction the higher english drama has declined those who would live to please mr whelks must please mr whelks to live it is not the manager's province to hold the mirror up to nature but to mr whelks the only person who acknowledges him if in like manner the actor's nature like the dyer's hand becomes subdued to what he works in the actor can hardly be blamed for it he grinds hard at his vocation is often steeped in direful poverty and lives at the best in a little world of mockeries it is bad enough to give away a great estate six nights a week and want a shilling to preside at imaginary banquets hungry for a mutton-chop to smack the lips over a tankard of toast and water and declaim about the mellow produce of the sunny vineyard on the banks of the rhine to be a rattling young lover with the measles at home and to paint sorrow over with burnt cork and rouge without being called upon to despise his vocation too if he can utter the trash to which he is condemned with any relish so much the better for him heaven knows and peace be with him a few weeks ago we went to one of mr Wilkes's favorite theatres to see an attractive melodrama called may morning or the mystery of seventeen fifteen and the murder we had an idea that the former of these titles might refer to the month in which either the mystery or the murder happened but we found it to be the name of the heroine the pride of keswick vale who was called may morning after a common custom among the english peasantry from her bright eyes and merry laugh of this young lady it may be observed in passing that she subsequently sustained every possible calamity of human existence in a white muslin gown with blue tucks and that she did every conceivable and inconceivable thing with a pistol that could anyhow be affected by that description of firearms the theatre was extremely full the prices of admission were to the boxes a shilling to the pit sixpence to the gallery threepence the gallery was of enormous dimensions among the company in the front row we observed mr whelks and overflowing with occupants it required no close observation of the attentive faces rising one above another to the very door in the roof and squeezed and jammed in regardless of all discomforts even there to impress a stranger with a sense of its being highly desirable to lose no possible chance of effecting any mental improvement in that great audience the company in the pit were not very clean or sweet-savoured but there were some good-humoured young mechanics among them with their wives these were generally accompanied by the baby insomuch that the pit was a perfect nursery no effect made on the stage was so curious as the looking down on the quiet faces of these babies fast asleep after looking up at the staring sea of heads in the gallery 
there were a good many cold-fried soles in the pit besides and a variety of flat stone bottles of all portable sizes the audience in the boxes was of much the same character babies and fish excepted as the audience in the pit a private in the foot guard sat in the next box and a personage who wore pins on his coat instead of buttons and was in such a damp habit of living as to be quite mouldy was our nearest neighbor in several parts of the house we noticed some young pickpockets of our acquaintance but as they were evidently there as private individuals and not in their public capacity we were little disturbed by their presence for we consider the hours of idleness passed by this class of society as so much gain to society at large and we do not join in the whimsical sort of lamentation that is generally made over them when they are found to be unoccupied as we made these observations the curtains rose and we were presently in possession of the following particulars sir george elmore a melancholy baronet with every appearance of being in that advanced stage of indigestion in which mr morrison's patients usually are when they happen to hear through mr mote of the surprising effect of his vegetable pills was found to be living in a very large castle in the society of one round table two chairs and captain george elmore his supposed son the child of mystery and the man of crime the captain in addition to an undutiful habit of bullying his father on all occasions was a prey to many vices foremost among which may be mentioned his desertion of his wife estella de neva a spanish lady and his determination unlawfully to possess himself of may morning m m being then on the eve of marriage to william stanmore a cheerful sailor with very loose legs the strongest evidence at first of the captain's being the child of mystery and man of crime was deducible from his boots which being very high and wide and apparently made of sticking plaster justified the worst theatrical suspicions to his disadvantage and indeed he presently turned out as ill as could be desired getting into may morning's cottage by the window after dark refusing to unhand may morning when required to do so by that lady waking may morning's only surviving parent a blind old gentleman with a black ribbon over his eyes whom we shall call mr stars as his name was stated in the bill thus star 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 and showing himself desperately bent on carrying off may morning by force of arms even this was not the worst of the captain for being foiled in his diabolical purpose temporarily by means of knives and pistols providentially caught up and directed at him by may morning and finally for the time being by the advent of will stanmore he caused one slink his adherent to denounce will stanmore as a rebel and got that cheerful mariner carried off and shut up in prison at about the same period of the captain's career there suddenly appeared in his father's castle a dark-complexioned lady of the name of manuela a zingara woman from the pyrenean mountains the wild wanderer of the heath and the pronouncer of the prophecy 
who threw the melancholy baronet his supposed father into the greatest confusion by asking him what he had upon his conscience and by pronouncing mysterious rhymes concerning the child of mystery and the man of crime to a low trembling of fiddles matters were in this state when the theatre resounded with applause and mr whelks fell into a fit of unbounded enthusiasm consequent on the entrance of michael the mendicant at first we referred something of the cordiality with which michael the mendicant was greeted to the fact of his being made up with an excessively dirty face which might create a bond of union between himself and a large majority of the audience but it soon came out that michael the mendicant had been hired in old time by sir george elmore to murder his sir george elmore's elder brother which he had done notwithstanding which little affair of honour michael was in reality a very good fellow quite a tender-hearted man who on hearing of the captain's determination to settle will stanmore cried out what more blood and fell flat overpowered by his nice sense of humanity in like manner in describing that small error of judgment into which he had allowed himself to be tempted by money this gentleman exclaimed i struck him down i fell in error and further he remarked with honest pride i have lived uh, as a beggar a roadsider vagrant but no crime since then has stained these hands all these sentiments of the worthy man were hailed with showers of applause and when in the excitement of his feelings on one occasion after a soliloquy he went off on his back kicking and shuffling along the ground after the manner of bold spirits in trouble who object to be taken to the station-house the cheering was tremendous and to see how little harm he had done after all sir george elmore's elder brother was not dead not he he recovered after this sensitive creature had fellid in error and putting a black ribbon over his eyes to disguise himself went and lived in a modest retirement with his only child in short mr stars was the identical individual when will stanmore turned out to be the wrongful sir george elmore's son instead of the child of mystery and man of crime who turned out to be michael's son a change having been effected in revenge by the lady from the pyrenean mountains who became the wild wonder of the heath in consequence of the wrongful sir george elmore's perfidy to her and desertion of her mr stars went up to the castle and mentioned to his murdering brother how it was mr stars said it was all right he bore no malice he had kept out of the way in order that his murdering brother to whose numerous virtues he was no stranger might enjoy the property and now he would propose that they should make it up and dine together the murdering brother immediately consented embraced the wild wanderer and it is supposed sent instructions to doctors commons for a license to marry her after which they were all very comfortable indeed for it is not much to try to murder your brother for the sake of his property 
if you only suborn such a delicate assassin as michael the mendicant all this did not tend to the satisfaction of the child of mystery and the man of crime who was so little pleased by the general happiness that he shot will stanmore now joyfully out of prison and going to be married directly to may morning and carried off the body and may morning to boot to a lone hut here will stanmore laid out for dead at fifteen minutes past twelve p m arose at seventeen minutes past infinitely fresher than most daisies and fought two strong men single-handed however the wild wanderer arriving with a party of male wild wanderers who were always at her disposal and the murdering brother arriving arm-in-arm arm with mr stars stopped the combat confounded the child of mystery and the man of crime and blessed the lovers the adventures of red ribbon the bandit concluded the moral lesson of the evening but feeling by this time a little fatigued and believing that we already discerned in the countenance of mr whelks a sufficient confusion between right and wrong to last him for one night we retired the rather as we intended to meet him shortly at another place of dramatic entertainment for the people end of the amusement of the people number one a walk in a workhouse this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this reading by carl manchester 2012 a walk in a workhouse by charles dickens on a certain sunday i formed one of the congregation assembled in the chapel of a large metropolitan workhouse with the exception of the clergyman and clerk, and a very few officials, there were none but paupers present. The children sat in the galleries, the women in the body of the chapel and in one of the side aisles, the men in the remaining aisle. The service was decorously performed, though the sermon might have been much better adapted to the comprehension and to the circumstances of the hearers. The usual supplications were offered, with more than the usual significancy in such a place, for all the fatherless children and widows, for all the sick persons and young children, for all that were desolate and oppressed, for the comforting and helping of the weak-hearted, for the raising up of them that had fallen, for all that were in danger, necessity and tribulation. The prayers of the congregation were desired for several persons in the various wards dangerously ill and others who were recovering returned their thanks to heaven. Among this congregation were some evil-looking young women and beetle-browed young men, but not many. Perhaps that kind of characters kept away. Generally the faces, those of the children accepted, were depressed and subdued, and wanted colour. Aged people were there in every variety, mumbling, blear-eyed, spectacled, stupid, deaf, lame, vacantly winking in the gleams of sun that now and then crept in through the open doors from the paved yard, shading their listening ears, or blinking eyes, with their withered hands, 
poring over their books, leering at nothing, going to sleep, crouching and drooping in corners. There were weird old women, all skeleton within, all bonnet and cloak without, continually wiping their hands with dirty dusters of pocket handkerchiefs. And there were ugly old crones, both male and female, with a ghastly kind of contentment upon them, which was not at all comforting to see. Upon the whole, it was the dragon, pauperism, in a very weak and impotent condition, toothless, fangless, drawing his breath heavily enough, and hardly worth chaining up. When the service was over, I walked with the humane and conscientious gentleman whose duty it was to take that walk, that Sunday morning, through the little world of poverty enclosed within the workhouse walls. It was inhabited by a population of some 1,500 or 2,000 paupers, ranging from the infant newly born, or not yet come into the pauper world, to the old man dying on his bed. In a room opening from a squalid yard, where a number of listless women were lounging to and fro, trying to get warm in the ineffectual sunshine of the tardy May morning, in the itch ward, not to compromise the truth, a woman such as Hogarth has often drawn, was hurriedly getting on her gown before a dusty fire. She was the nurse or wardswoman of that insalubrious department, herself a pauper, flabby, raw-boned, untidy, unpromising and coarse of aspect as need be. But on being spoken to about the patients whom she had in charge, she turned round with her shabby gown half on, half off, and fell a-crying with all her might. Not for show, not querulously, not in any mawkish sentiment, but in the deep grief and affliction of her heart, turning away her dishevelled head, sobbing most bitterly, wringing her hands, and letting fall abundance of great tears that choked her utterance. What was the matter with the nurse of the itch ward? Oh, the dropped child was dead. Oh, the child that was found in the street, and she had brought up ever since, had died an hour ago. And see where the little creature lay, beneath this cloth, the dear, the pretty dear. The dropped child seemed too small and poor a thing for death to be in earnest with, but death had taken it, and already its diminutive form was neatly washed, composed, and stretched as if in sleep upon a box. I thought I heard a voice from heaven saying, It shall be well for thee, O nurse of the itch ward, when some less gentle pauper does those offices to thy cold form, that such as the dropped child are the angels who behold my father's face. In another room were several ugly old women, crouching witch-like round a hearth and chattering and nodding after the manner of the monkeys. All well here and enough to eat, a general chattering and chuckling. At last an answer from a volunteer. Oh, yes, gentlemen, bless you, gentlemen, Lord bless the parish of St. So-and-so. It feed the hungry, sir, and give drink to the thirsty, and it warm them which is cold, so it do. And good luck to the parish of St. So-and-so, and thank ye, gentlemen. Elsewhere, a party of pauper nurses were at dinner. How do you get on? Oh, pretty well, sir. We works hard, and we lives hard, like the sodgers. In another room, 
a kind of purgatory or place of transition, six or eight noisy madwomen were gathered together under the superintendence of one sane attendant. Among them was a girl of two or three and twenty, very prettily dressed, of most respectable appearance and good manners, who had been brought in from the house where she had lived as domestic servant, having, I suppose, no friends, on account of being subject to epileptic fits, and requiring to be removed under the influence of a very bad one. She was by no means of the same stuff, or the same breeding, or the same experience, or in the same state of mind, of those by whom she was surrounded, and she pathetically complained that the daily association and the nightly noise made her worse, and was driving her mad, which was perfectly evident. The case was noted for inquiry and redress, but she said she had already been there for some weeks. If this girl had stolen her mistress's watch, I do not hesitate to say she would have been infinitely better off. We have come to this absurd, this dangerous, this monstrous pass, that the dishonest felon is, in respect of cleanliness, order, diet and accommodation, better provided for and taken care of, than the honest pauper. And this conveys no special imputation on the workhouse of the parish of St. So-and-so, where, on the contrary, I saw many things to commend. It was very agreeable, recollecting that most infamous and atrocious enormity committed at Tooting, an enormity which, a hundred years hence, will still be vividly remembered in the byways of English life and which has done more to engender a gloomy discontent and suspicion among many thousands of the people than all the Chartist leaders could have done in all their lives, to find the pauper children in this workhouse looking robust and well, and apparently in the objects of very great care. In the infant school, a large, light, airy room at the top of the building, the little creatures being at dinner and eating their potatoes heartily, were not cowed by the presence of strange visitors, but stretched out their small hands to be shaken, with a very pleasant confidence. And it was comfortable to see two mangy pauper rocking-horses rampant in a corner. In the girls' school, where the dinner was also in progress, everything bore a cheery and healthy aspect. The meal was over in the boys' school by the time of our arrival there, and the room was not yet quite rearranged but the boys were roaming unrestrained about a large and airy yard, as any other schoolboys might have done. Some of them had been drawing large ships upon the schoolroom wall, and if they had a mast with shrouds and stays set up for practice, as they have in the Middlesex House of Correction, it would be so much the better. At present, if a boy should feel a strong impulse upon him to learn the art of going aloft, he could only gratify it, I presume, as the men and women paupers gratify their aspirations after better board and lodging, by smashing as many workhouse windows as possible, and being promoted to prison. In one place, the new gate of the workhouse, a company of boys and youths were locked up in a yard alone, their day-room being a kind of kennel, where the casual poor used formerly to be littered down at night. Divers of them had been going there some long time, are they never going away? was a natural inquiry. Most of them are crippled in some form or other, said the wardsman, and not fit for anything. They slunk about like dispirited wolves or hyenas, and made a pounce at their food when it was served out, much as those animals do. 
the big-headed idiot shuffling his feet along the pavement, in the sunlight outside, was a more agreeable object anyway. Groves of babies in arms, groves of mothers and other sick women in bed, groves of lunatics, jungles of men in stone-paved downstairs day-rooms, waiting for their dinners, longer and longer groves of old people in upstairs infirmary wards, wearing out life, God knows how. This was the scenery through which the walk lay for two hours. In some of these latter chambers there were pictures stuck against the wall and a neat display of crockery and pewter on a kind of sideboard. Now and then it was a treat to see a plant or two. In almost every ward there was a cat. In all these long walks of aged and infirm, some old people were bedridden and had been for a long time. Some were sitting on their beds half-naked, some dying in their beds, some out of bed and sitting at a table near the fire. A sullen or lethargic indifference to what was asked, a blunted sensibility to everything but warmth and food, a moody absence of complaint as being of no use, a dogged silence and resentful desire to be left alone again, I thought were generally apparent. On our walking into the midst of one of these dreary perspectives of old men, nearly the following little dialogue took place, the nurse not being immediately at hand. All well here? No answer. An old man in a Scotch cap, sitting amongst others on a form at the table, eating out of a tin porringer, pushes back his cap a little to look at us, claps it down on his forehead again, with the palm of his hand, and goes on eating. All well here, repeated. No answer. All well here, repeated. No answer. Another old man sitting on his bed, paralytically peeling a boiled potato, lifts his head and stares. Enough to eat? No answer. Another old man in bed turns himself and coughs. How are you today? To the last old man. That old man says nothing, but another old man, a tall old man of very good address, speaking with perfect correctness, comes forward from somewhere and volunteers an answer. The reply almost always proceeds from a volunteer, and not from the person looked at or spoken to. We are very old, sir, in a mild, distinct voice. We can't expect to be well, most of us. Are you comfortable? I have no complaint to make, sir. With a half shake of his head, a half shrug of his shoulders, and a kind of apologetic smile. Enough to eat? Why, sir, I have but a poor appetite. With the same air as before. And yet I get through my allowance very easily. But, showing a porringer with a Sunday dinner in it, here is a portion of mutton and three potatoes. You can't starve on that. Oh dear, no, sir, with the same apologetic air. Not starve. What do you want? We have very little bread, sir. It's an exceedingly small quantity of bread. The nurse, who is now rubbing her hands at the questioner's elbow, interferes with, It ain't much really, sir. You can see they're only six ounces a day, and when they've took their breakfast, there can only be a little left for night, sir. 
another old man, hitherto invisible, rises out of his bedclothes, as out of a grave, and looks on. You have tea at night. The questioner is still addressing the well-spoken old man. Yes, sir, we have tea at night. And you save what bread you can from the morning to eat with it. Yes, sir, if we can save any. And you want more to eat with it. Yes, sir, with a very anxious face. The questioner, in the kindness of his heart, appears a little discomposed, and changes the subject. What has become of the old man who used to lie in that bed in the corner? The nurse don't remember what old man is referred to. There has been such a many old men. The well-spoken old man is doubtful. The spectral old man, who has come to life in bed, says, Billy Stevens. Another old man, who has previously had his head in the fireplace, pipes out, Charlie Walters. Something like a feeble interest is awakened. I suppose Charlie Walters had conversation in him. He's dead, says the piping old man. Another old man, with one eye screwed up, hastily displaces the piping old man and says, Yes, Charlie Walters died in that bed, and... and... Billy Stevens, persists the spectral old man. No, no, and Johnny Rogers died in that bed, and they're both of them dead. And Samuel Boyer, this seems very extraordinary to him, he went out. With this he subsides, and all the old men, having had quite enough of it, subside. And the spectral old man goes into his grave again, and takes the shade of Billy Stevens with him. As we turn to go out at the door, another previously invisible old man, a horse old man in a flannel gown, is standing there, as if he had just come up through the floor. I beg your pardon, sir. Could I take the liberty of saying a word? Yes, what is it? I am greatly better in my health, sir, but what I want, to get me quite round, with his hand on his throat, is a little fresh air, sir. It has always done my complaint so much good, sir. The regular leave for going out comes round so seldom that if the gentleman next Friday would give me leave to go out walking now and then, sir, for only an hour or so, sir, who could wonder, looking through those weary vistas of bed and infirmity, that it should do him good to meet with some other scenes and assure himself that there was something else on earth? Who could help wondering why the old men lived on as they did, what grasp they had on life, what crumbs of interest or occupation they could pick up from its bare board, whether Charlie Walters had ever described to them the days when he kept company with some old pauper woman in the bud, or Billy Stevens ever told them of the time when he was a dweller in the far-off foreign land called home. The morsel of burnt child lying in another room so patiently in bed, wrapped in lint and looking steadfastly at us with his bright, quiet eyes, when we spoke to him kindly, looked as if the knowledge of these things, and of all the tender things there are to think about, might have been in his mind, as if he thought with us that there was a fellow-feeling in the pauper nurses, which appeared to make them more kind to their charges than the race of common nurses in the hospital, as if he mused upon the future of some older children lying around him in the same place, and thought it best, perhaps, all things considered, that he should die, as if he knew, without fear, of those many coffins, made and unmade, piled up in the store below. And of his unknown friend, the dropped child, calm upon the box-lid, 
covered with a cloth. But there was something wistful and appealing, too, in his tiny face, as if, in the midst of all the hard necessities and incongruities, he pondered on, he pleaded, in behalf of the helpless and the aged poor, for a little more liberty and a little more bread. End of A Walk in a Workhouse The Hymn of the Wiltshire Labourers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1 The Hymn of the Wiltshire Labourers by Charles Dickens O God! who by thy prophet's hand didst smite the rocky break, whence water came at thy command thy people's thirst to slake. Strike now upon this granite wall, stern, obdurate, and high, and let some drops of pity fall for us who starve and die. The God who took a little child and set him in the midst, and promised him his mercy mild, as by thy son thou didst, Look down upon our children dear, so gaunt, so cold, so spare, and let their images appear where lords and gentry are. O oh God, teach them to feel how we, when our poor infants droop, are weakened in our trust in thee, and how our spirits stoop, for in thy rest so bright and fair, all tears and sorrow sleep, and their young looks so full of care would make thine angels weep. The God who with his finger drew the judgment coming on. Write for these men what must ensue ere many years be gone. O God, whose bow is in the sky, let them not brave and dare, until they look too late on high and see an arrow there. O God, remind them in the bread they break upon the knee. Those sacred words may yet be read in memory of me. O oh God, remind them of his sweet compassion for the poor, and how he gave them bread to eat, and went from door to door. End of The Hymn of the Wiltshire Labourers Recording by Christine G. in Oslo, Norway The 15th of January, 2012「Section 17. Speech. London, June 5, 1867, to the Railway Benevolent Society. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arielle Lipshaw. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1. Speech. London, June 5, 1867, to the Railway Benevolent Society, by Charles Dickens. On the above date, Mr. Dickens presided at the ninth anniversary festival of the Railway Benevolent Society, at Willis's Rooms, and in proposing the toast of the evening, made the following speech. 
Although we have not yet left behind us by the distance of nearly fifty years, the time when one of the first literary authorities of this country insisted upon the speed of the fastest railway train that the legislature might disastrously sanction, being limited by act of Parliament to ten miles an hour, yet it does somehow happen that this evening, and every evening, there are railway trains running pretty smoothly to Ireland and to Scotland at the rate of fifty miles an hour much as it was objected in its time to vaccination, that it must have a tendency to impart to human children something of the nature of the cow, whereas I believe, to this very time, vaccinated children are found to be as easily defined from calves as they ever were, and certainly they have no cheapening influence on the price of veal, much as it was objected that chloroform was a contravention of the will of providence, because it lessened providentially inflicted pain, which would be a reason for your not rubbing your face if you had the toothache, or not rubbing your nose if it itched. So it was evidently predicted that the railway system, even if anything so absurd could be productive of any result, would infallibly throw half the nation out of employment. Whereas, you observe that the very cause and occasion of our coming here together to-night is, apart from the various tributary channels of occupation which it has opened out, that it has called into existence a specially and directly employed population of upwards of two hundred thousand persons. Now, gentlemen, it is pretty clear and obvious that upwards of two hundred thousand persons engaged upon the various railways of the United Kingdom cannot be rich, and although their duties require great care and great exactness, and although our lives are every day, humanly speaking, in the hands of many of them, still, for the most of these places there will be always great competition, because they are not posts which require skilled workmen to hold. Wages, as you know very well, cannot be high where competition is great, and you also know very well that railway directors, in the bargains they make and the salaries which they pay, have to deal with the money of the shareholders to whom they are accountable. Thus it necessarily happens that railway officers and servants are not remunerated on the whole by any means splendidly, and that they cannot hope in the ordinary course of things to do more than meet the ordinary wants and hazards of life. But it is to be observed that the general hazards are in their case, by reason of the dangerous nature of their avocations, exceptionally great, so very great, I find, as to be statable, on the authority of a parliamentary paper, by the very startling round of figures, that whereas one railway traveller in eight million of passengers is killed, one railway servant in every two thousand is killed. Hence, from general, special, as well, no doubt, for the usual prudential and benevolent considerations, there came to be established among railway officers and servants, nine years ago, the Railway Benevolent Association. I may suppose, therefore, as it was established nine years ago, that this is the ninth occasion of publishing from this chair the bands between this institution and the public. Nevertheless, I feel bound individually to do my duty the same as if it had never been done before, and to ask whether there is any just cause or impediment why these two parties, the institution and the public, should not be joined together in holy charity. As I understand the society, its objects are fivefold. First, to guarantee annuities which, it is always to be observed, is paid out of the interest of invested capital, so that those annuities may be secure and safe annual pensions varying from ten pounds to twenty-five pounds to distressed railway officers and servants incapacitated by age, sickness, or accident. Secondly, to guarantee small pensions to distressed widows. 
thirdly, to educate and maintain orphan children, fourthly, to provide temporary relief for all those classes, till lasting relief can be guaranteed out of funds sufficiently large for the purpose, lastly, to induce railway officers and servants to assure their lives in some well-established office by subdividing the payment of the premiums into small periodical sums, and also by granting a reversionary bonus of ten pounds per cent on the amount assured from the funds of the institution. This is the society we are met to assist. Simple, sympathetic, practical, easy, sensible, unpretending. The number of its members is large and rapidly on the increase. They number twelve thousand. The amount of invested capital is very nearly fifteen thousand pounds. It has done a world of good and a world of work in these first nine years of its life, and yet I am proud to say that the annual cost of the maintenance of the institution is no more than two hundred and fifty pounds. And now, if you do not know all about it in a small compass, either I do not know all about it myself, or the fault must be in my packing. One naturally passes from what the institution is and has done to what it wants. Well, it wants to do more good, and it cannot possibly do more good until it has more money. It cannot safely, and therefore it cannot honourably, grant more pensions to deserving applicants until it grows richer, and it cannot grow rich enough for its laudable purpose by its own unaided self. The thing is absolutely impossible. The means of these railway officers and servants are far too limited. Even if they were helped to the utmost by the great railway companies, their means would still be too limited. Even if they were helped, and I hope they shortly will be, by some of the great corporations of this country, whom railways have done so much to enrich. These railway officers and servants, on their road to a very humble and modest superannuation, can no more do without the help of the great public than the great public, on their road from Torquay to Aberdeen, can do without them. Therefore, I desire to ask the public whether the servants of the great railways, who, in fact, are their servants, their ready, zealous, faithful, hard-working servants, whether they have not established, whether they do not every day establish, a reasonable claim to liberal remembrance. Now, gentlemen, on this point of the case there is a story once told me by a friend of mine, which seems to my mind to have a certain application. My friend was an American sea-captain, and, therefore, it is quite unnecessary to say his story was quite true. He was captain and part-owner of a large American merchant-liner. On a certain voyage out, in exquisite summer weather, he had for cabin passengers one beautiful young lady, and ten more or less beautiful young gentlemen. Light winds or dead calms prevailing, the voyage was slow. They had made half their distance when the ten young gentlemen were all madly in love with the beautiful young lady. They had all proposed to her, and bloodshed among the rivals seemed imminent pending the young lady's decision. On this extremity the beautiful young lady confided in my friend the captain, who gave her discreet advice. He said, "'If your affections are disengaged, take that one of the young gentlemen whom you like the best and settle the question.' To this the beautiful young lady made reply, "'I cannot do that, because I like them all equally well.' My friend, who was a man of resource, hit upon this ingenious expedient, said he, "'Tomorrow morning at midday, when lunch is announced, do you plunge bodily overboard, head foremost. I will be alongside in a boat to rescue you, and take the one of the ten who rushes to your rescue, and then you can afterwards have him.' The beautiful young lady highly approved, and did accordingly. 
But after she plunged in, nine out of the ten more or less beautiful young gentlemen plunged in after her, and the tenth remained and shed tears, looking over the side of the vessel. They were all picked up and restored dripping to the deck. The beautiful young lady upon seeing them said, "'What am I to do? See what a plight they are in. How can I possibly choose, because every one of them is equally wet?' Then said my friend the captain, acting upon a sudden inspiration, "'Take the dry one.' I am sorry to say that she did so, and they lived happy ever afterwards. Now, gentlemen, in my application of this story I exactly reverse my friend the captain's anecdote, and I entreat the public in looking about to consider who are fit subjects for their bounty, to give each his hand with something in it, and not award a dry hand to the industrious railway servant who is always at his back. And I would ask any one with a doubt upon this subject to consider what his experience of the railway servant is from the time of his departure to his arrival at his destination. I know what mine is. Here he is, in velveteen or in a policeman's dress, scaling cabs, storming carriages, finding lost articles by a sort of instinct, binding up lost umbrellas and walking-sticks, wheeling trunks, counselling old ladies with a wonderful interest in their affairs, mostly very complicated, and sticking labels upon all sorts of articles. I look around. There he is in a station-master's uniform, directing and overseeing with the head of a general, and with the courteous manners of a gentleman. And then there is the handsome figure of the guard, who inspires confidence in timid passengers. I glide out of the station, and there he is again with his flags in his hand at his post in the open country, at the level crossing, at the cutting, at the tunnel-mouth, and at every station on the road until our destination is reached. In regard, therefore, to the railway servants with whom we do come into contact, we may surely have some natural sympathy, and it is on their behalf that I this night appeal to you. I beg now to propose success to the Railway Benevolent Society. End of section 17THE HOLLY TREE FIRST BRANCH MYSELF This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1 The Holly Tree, First Branch, Myself, by Charles Dickens I have kept one secret in the course of my life. I am a bashful man. Nobody would suppose it. Nobody ever does suppose it. Nobody ever did suppose it. But I am naturally a bashful man. This is the secret which I have never breathed until now. I might greatly move the reader by some account of the innumerable places I have not been to, the innumerable people I have not called upon or received, the innumerable social evasions I have been guilty of, solely because I am, by original constitution and character, a bashful man. But I will leave the reader unmoved, and proceed with the object before me. That object is to give a plain account of my travels and discoveries in the Holly Tree Inn, in which place of good entertainment for man and beast I was once snowed up. It happened in the memorable year when I parted for ever from Angela Leith 
whom i was shortly to have married on making the discovery that she preferred my bosom friend from our school days i had freely admitted edwin in my own mind to be far superior to myself and though i was grievously wounded at heart i felt the preference to be natural and tried to forgive them both it was under these circumstances that i resolved to go to america on my way to the devil communicating my discovery neither to angela nor to edwin but resolving to write each of them an affecting letter conveying my blessing and forgiveness which the steam-tender for sure should carry to the post when i myself should be bound for the new world far beyond recall i say locking up my grief in my own breast and consoling myself as i could with the prospect of being generous i quietly left all i held dear and started on the desolate journey i have mentioned the dead winter time was in full dreariness when i left my chambers for ever at five o'clock in the morning i had shaved by candlelight of course and was miserably cold and experienced that general all-pervading sensation of getting up to be hanged which i have usually found inseparable from untimely rising under such circumstances how well i remember the forlorn aspect of fleet street when i came out of the temple the street lamps flickering in the gusty northeast wind as if the very gas were contorted with cold the white-topped houses the bleak star-lighted sky the market people and other early stragglers trotting to circulate their almost frozen blood the hospitable light and warmth of the few coffee-shops and public-houses that were open for such customers the hard dry frosty rime with which the air was charged the wind had already beaten it into every crevice and which lashed my face like a steel whip it wanted nine days to the end of the month and end of the year the post-office packet for the united states was to depart from liverpool weather permitting on the first of the ensuing month and i had the intervening time on my hands i had taken this into consideration and had resolved to make a visit to a certain spot which i need not name on the farther borders of yorkshire it was endeared to me by my having first seen angela at a farmhouse in that place and my melancholy was gratified by the idea of taking a wintry leave of it before my expatriation i ought to explain that to avoid being sought out before my resolution should have been rendered irrevocable by being carried into full effect i had written to angela overnight in my usual manner lamenting that urgent business of which she should know all particulars by and by took me unexpectedly away from her for a week or ten days there was no northern railway at that time and in its place there were stage-coaches which i occasionally find myself in common with some other people affecting to lament now but which everybody dreaded as a very serious penance then i had secured the box-seat on the fastest of these and my business in fleet street was to get into a cab with my portmanteau so to make the best of my way to the peacock at islington where i was to join this coach 
but when one of our temple watchmen who carried my portmanteau into fleet street for me told me about the huge blocks of ice that had for some days past been floating in the river having closed up in the night and made a walk from the temple gardens over to the surrey shore i began to ask myself the question whether the box-seat would not be likely to put a sudden and a frosty end to my unhappiness i was heartbroken it is true and yet i was not quite so far gone as to wish to be frozen to death when i got up to the peacock where i found everybody drinking hot pearl in self-preservation i asked if there were an inside seat to spare i then discovered that inside or out i was the only passenger this gave me a still livelier idea of the great inclemency of the weather since that coach always loaded particularly well however i took a little pearl which i found uncommonly good and got into the coach when i was seated they built me up with straw to the waist and conscious of making a rather ridiculous appearance i began my journey it was still dark when we left the peacock for a little while pale uncertain ghosts of houses and trees appeared and vanished and then it was hard black frozen day people were lighting their fires smoke was mounting straight up high into the rarefied air and we were rattling for highgate archway over the hardest ground i have ever heard the ring of iron shoes on as we got into the country everything seemed to have grown old and grey the roads the trees thatched roofs of cottages and homesteads the ricks in farmers yards outdoor work was abandoned horse troughs at roadside inns were frozen hard no stragglers lounged about doors were close shut little turnpike houses had blazing fires inside and children even turnpike people have children and seem to like them rubbed the frost from the little panes of glass with their chubby arms that their bright eyes might catch a glimpse of the solitary coach going by i don't know when the snow began to set in but i know that we were changing horses somewhere when i heard the guard remark that the old lady up in the sky was picking her geese pretty hard to-day then indeed i found the white down falling fast and thick the lonely day wore on and i dozed it out as a lonely traveller does i was warm and valiant after eating and drinking particularly after dinner cold and depressed at all other times i was always bewildered as to time and place and always more or less out of my senses the coach and horses seemed to execute in chorus old lang syne without a moment's intermission they kept the time and tune with the greatest regularity and rose into the swell at the beginning of the refrain with a precision that worried me to death while we changed horses the guard and coachman went stumping up and down the road printing off their shoes in the snow and poured so much liquid consolation into themselves without being any the worse for it that i began to confound them as it darkened again with two great white casks standing on end our horses tumbled down in solitary places and we got them up which was the pleasantest variety i had for it warmed me and it snowed and snowed and still it snowed and never left off snowing all night long we went on in this manner 
thus we came round the clock upon the great north road to the performance of old lang syne by day again and it snowed and snowed and still it snowed and never left off snowing i forget now where we were at noon on the second day and where we ought to have been but i know that we were scores of miles behindhand and that our case was growing worse every hour the drift was becoming prodigiously deep landmarks were getting snowed out the road and the fields were all one instead of having fences and hedgerows to guide us we went crunching on over an unbroken surface of ghastly white that might sink beneath us at any moment and drop us down a whole hillside still the coachman and guard who kept together on the box always in council and looking well about them made out the track with astonishing sagacity when we came in sight of a town it looked to my fancy like a large drawing on a slate with abundance of slate pencil expended on the churches and houses where the snow lay thickest when we came within a town and found the church clocks all stopped the dial faces choked with snow and the inn signs blotted out it seemed as if the whole place were overgrown with white moss as to the coach it was a mere snowball similarly the men and boys who ran along beside us to the town's end turning our clogged wheels and encouraging our horses were men and boys of snow and the bleak wild solitude to which they at last dismissed us was a snowy sahara one would have thought this enough notwithstanding which i pledge my word that it snowed and snowed and still it snowed and never left off snowing we performed old lang syne the whole day seeing nothing out of towns and villages but the track of stoats hares and foxes and sometimes of birds at nine o'clock at night on a yorkshire moor a cheerful burst from our horn and a welcome sound of talking with a glimmering and moving about of lanterns roused me from my drowsy state i found that we were going to change they helped me out and i said to a waiter whose bare head became as white as king lear's in a single minute what in is this the holly tree sir said he upon my word i believe said i apologetically to the guard and coachman that i must stop here now the landlord and the landlady and the ostler and the postboy and all the stable authorities had already asked the coachman to the wide-eyed interest of all the rest of the establishment if he meant to go on the coachman had already replied yes he'd take her through it meaning by her the coach if so be as george would stand by him george was the guard and he had already sworn that he would stand by him so the helpers were already getting the horses out my declaring myself beaten after this parley was not an announcement without preparation indeed but for the way to the announcement being smoothed by the parley i more than doubt whether as an innately bashful man i should have had the confidence to make it as it was it received the approval even of the guard and coachman therefore with many confirmations of my inclining 
and many remarks from one bystander to another that the gentleman could go forward by the mail to-morrow whereas to-night he would only be froze and where was the good of a gentleman being froze ah let alone buried alive which latter clause was added by a humorous helper as a joke at my expense and was extremely well received i saw my portmanteau got out stiff like a frozen body did the handsome thing by the guard and coachman wished them good-night and a prosperous journey and a little ashamed of myself after all for leaving them to fight it out alone followed the landlord landlady and waiter of the holly tree upstairs i thought i had never seen such a large room as that into which they showed me it had five windows with dark red curtains that would have absorbed the light of a general illumination and there were complications of drapery at the top of the curtains that went wandering about the wall in a most extraordinary manner i asked for a smaller room and they told me there was no smaller room they could screen me in however the landlord said they brought a great old japanned screen with natives japanese i suppose engaged in a variety of idiotic pursuits all over it and left me roasting whole before an immense fire my bedroom was some quarter of a mile off up a great staircase at the end of a long gallery and nobody knows what a misery this is to a bashful man who would rather not meet people on the stairs it was the grimmest room i have ever had the nightmare in and all the furniture from the four posts of the bed to the two old silver candlesticks was tall high-shouldered and spindle-waisted below in my sitting-room if i looked round my screen the wind rushed at me like a mad bull if i stuck to my armchair the fire scorched me to the colour of a new brick the chimney-piece was very high and there was a bad glass what i may call a wavy glass above it which when i stood up just showed me my anterior phrenological developments and these never look well in any subject cut short off at the eyebrow if i stood with my back to the fire a gloomy vault of darkness above and beyond the screen insisted on being looked at and in its dim remoteness the drapery of the ten curtains of the five windows went twisting and creeping about like a nest of gigantic worms i suppose that what i observe in myself must be observed by some other men of similar character in themselves therefore i am emboldened to mention that when i travel i never arrive at a place but i immediately want to go away from it before i had finished my supper of broiled fowl and mulled port i had impressed upon the waiter in detail my arrangements for departure in the morning breakfast and bill at eight fly at nine two horses or if needful even four tired though i was the night appeared about a week long in cases of nightmare i thought of angela and felt more depressed than ever by the reflection that i was on the shortest road to gretna green what had i to do with gretna green i was not going that way to the devil but by the american route i remarked in my bitterness in the morning i found that it was snowing still that it had snowed all night and that i was snowed up 
nothing could get out of that spot on the moor or could come at it until the road had been cut out by labourers from the market town when they might cut their way to the holly tree nobody could tell me it was now christmas eve i should have had a dismal christmas time of it anywhere and consequently that did not so much matter still being snowed up was like dying of frost a thing i had not bargained for i felt very lonely yet i could no more have proposed to the landlord and landlady to admit me to their society though i should have liked it very much than i could have asked them to present me with a piece of plate here my great secret the real bashfulness of my character is to be observed like most bashful men i judge of other people as if they were bashful too besides being far too shamefaced to make the proposal myself i really had a delicate misgiving that it would be in the last degree disconcerting to them trying to settle down therefore in my solitude i first of all asked what books there were in the house the waiter brought me a book of roads two or three old newspapers a little song-book terminating in a collection of toasts and sentiments a little jest-book an odd volume of peregrine pickle and the sentimental journey i knew every word of the two last already but i read them through again then tried to hum all the songs old lang syne was among them went entirely through the jokes in which i found a fund of melancholy adapted to my state of mind proposed all the toasts enunciated all the sentiments and mastered the papers the latter had nothing in them but stock advertisements a meeting about a county rate and a highway robbery as i am a greedy reader i could not make this supply hold out until night it was exhausted by tea-time being then entirely cast upon my own resources i got through an hour in considering what to do next ultimately it came into my head from which i was anxious by any means to exclude angela and edwin that i would endeavour to recall my experience of inns and would try how long it lasted me i stirred the fire moved my chair a little to one side of the screen not daring to go far for i knew the wind was waiting to make a rush at me i could hear it growling and began my first impressions of an inn dated from the nursery consequently i went back to the nursery for a starting point and found myself at the knee of a sallow woman with a fishy eye an aquiline nose and a green gown whose speciality was a dismal narrative of a landlord by the roadside whose visitors unaccountably disappeared for many years until it was discovered that the pursuit of his life had been to convert them into pies for the better devotion of himself to this branch of industry he had constructed a secret door behind the head of the bed and when the visitor oppressed with pie had fallen asleep this wicked landlord would look softly in with a lamp in one hand and a knife in the other would cut his throat and would make him into pies for which purpose he had coppers underneath a trap-door always boiling and rolled out his pastry in the dead of the night 
yet even he was not insensible to the stings of conscience for he never went to sleep without being heard to mutter too much pepper which was eventually the cause of his being brought to justice i had no sooner disposed of this criminal than there started up another of the same period whose profession was originally housebreaking in the pursuit of which art he had had his right ear chopped off one night as he was burglariously getting in at a window by a brave and lovely servant-maid whom the aquiline-nosed woman though not at all answering the description always mysteriously implied to be herself after several years this brave and lovely servant-maid was married to the landlord of a country inn which landlord had this remarkable characteristic that he always wore a silk nightcap and never would on any consideration take it off at last one night when he was fast asleep the brave and lovely woman lifted up his silk nightcap on the right side and found that he had no ear there upon which she sagaciously perceived that he was the clipped housebreaker who had married her with the intention of putting her to death she immediately heated the poker and terminated his career for which she was taken to king george upon his throne and received the compliments of royalty on her great discretion and valour this same narrator who had a ghoulish pleasure i have long been persuaded in terrifying me to the utmost confines of my reason had another authentic anecdote within her own experience founded i now believe upon raymond and agnes or the bleeding nun she said it happened to her brother-in-law who was immensely rich which my father was not and immensely tall which my father was not it was always a point with this ghoul to present my clearest relations and friends to my youthful mind under circumstances of disparaging contrast the brother-in-law was riding once through a forest on a magnificent horse we had no magnificent horse at our house attended by a favourite and valuable newfoundland dog we had no dog when he found himself benighted and came to an inn a dark woman opened the door and he asked her if he could have a bed there she answered yes and put his horse in the stable and took him into a room where there were two dark men while he was at supper a parrot in the room began to talk saying blood blood wipe up the blood upon which one of the dark men wrung the parrot's neck and said he was fond of roasted parrots and he meant to have this one for breakfast in the morning after eating and drinking heartily the immensely rich tall brother-in-law went up to bed but he was rather vexed because they had shut his dog in the stable saying that they never allowed dogs in the house he sat very quiet for more than an hour thinking and thinking when just as his candle was burning out he heard a scratch at the door he opened the door and there was the newfoundland dog the dog came softly in smelt about him went straight to some straw in the corner which the dark men had said covered apples and disclosed two sheets steeped in blood 
just at that moment the candle went out and the brother-in-law looking through a chink in the door saw the two dark men stealing upstairs one armed with a dagger that long about five feet the other carrying a chopper a sack and a spade having no remembrance of the close of this adventure i suppose my faculties to have been always so frozen with terror at this stage of it that the power of listening stagnated within me for some quarter of an hour these barbarous stories carried me sitting there on the holly-tree hearth to the roadside inn renowned in my time in a sixpenny book with a folding plate representing in a central compartment of oval form the portrait of jonathan bradford and in four corner compartments four incidents of the tragedy with which the name is associated coloured with a hand at once so free and economical that the bloom of jonathan's complexion passed without any pause into the breeches of the ostler and smearing itself off into the next division became rum in a bottle then i remembered how the landlord was found at the murdered traveller's bedside with his own knife at his feet and blood upon his hand how he was hanged for the murder notwithstanding his protestation that he had indeed come there to kill the traveller for his saddle-bags but had been stricken motionless on finding him already slain and how the ostler years afterwards owned the deed by this time i had made myself quite uncomfortable i stirred the fire and stood with my back to it as long as i could bear the heat looking up at the darkness beyond the screen and at the wormy curtains creeping in and creeping out like the worms in the ballad of alonzo the brave and the fair imogene there was an inn in the cathedral town where i went to school which had pleasanter recollections about it than any of these i took it next it was the inn where friends used to put up and where we used to go to see parents and to have salmon and fowls and be tipped it had an ecclesiastical sign the mitre and a bar that seemed to be the next best thing to a bishopric it was so snug i loved the landlord's youngest daughter to distraction but let that pass it was in this inn that i was cried over by my rosy little sister because i had acquired a black eye in a fight and though she had been that holly-tree night for many a long year where all tears are dried the mitre softened me yet to be continued to-morrow said i when i took my candle to go to bed but my bed took it upon itself to continue the train of thought that night it carried me away like the enchanted carpet to a distant place though still in england and there alighting from a stage-coach at another inn in the snow as i had actually done some years before i repeated in my sleep a curious experience i had really had there more than a year before i made the journey in the course of which i put up at that inn i had lost a very near and dear friend by death every night since at home or away from home i had dreamed of that friend sometimes as still living sometimes as returning from the world of shadows to comfort me 
always as being beautiful, placid, and happy, never in association with any approach to fear or distress. It was at a lonely inn in a wide moorland place that I halted to pass the night. When I had looked from my bedroom window over the waste of snow on which the moon was shining, I sat down by my fire to write a letter. I had always, until that hour, kept it within my own breast that I dreamed every night of the dear lost one. But in the letter that I wrote I recorded the circumstance, and added that I felt much interested in proving whether the subject of my dream would still be faithful to me, travel-tired and in that remote place. No, I lost the beloved figure of my vision in parting with the secret. My sleep has never looked upon it since, in sixteen years, but once. I was in Italy, and awoke, or seemed to awake, the well-remembered voice distinctly in my ears, conversing with it. I entreated it, as it rose above my bed and soared up to the vaulted roof of the old room, to answer me a question I had asked touching the future life. My hands were still outstretched towards it as it vanished, when I heard a bell ringing by the garden wall, and a voice in the deep stillness of the night, calling on all good Christians to pray for the souls of the dead, it being All Souls' Eve. To return to the holly tree, when I awoke next day it was freezing hard, and the lowering sky threatened more snow. My breakfast cleared away, I drew my chair into its former place, and with the fire getting so much the better of the landscape that I sat in twilight, resumed my inn-remembrances. That was a good inn down in Wiltshire where I put up once, in the days of the hard Wiltshire ale, and before all beer was bitterness. It was on the skirts of Salisbury Plain, and the midnight wind that rattled my lattice window came moaning at me from Stonehenge. There was a hanger-on at that establishment, a supernaturally preserved druid, I believe him to have been, and to be still, with long white hair and a flinty blue eye always looking afar off, who claimed to have been a shepherd, and who seemed to be ever watching for the reappearance, on the verge of the horizon, of some ghostly flock of sheep that had been mutton for many ages. He was a man with a weird belief in him that no one could count the stones of Stonehenge twice and make the same number of them, likewise that any one who counted them three times nine times and then stood in the centre and said, I dare, would behold a tremendous apparition and be stricken dead. He pretended to have seen a bustard, I suspect him to have been familiar with the dodo, in manner following. He was out upon the plain at the close of a late autumn day, when he dimly discerned, going on before him at a curious, fitfully bounding pace, what he at first supposed to be a jig umbrella that had been blown from some conveyance, but what he presently believed to be a lean dwarf man upon a little pony. Having followed this object for some distance without gaining on it, and having called to it many times without receiving any answer, he pursued it for miles and miles, when at length coming up with it, he discovered it to be the last bustard in Great Britain, 
degenerated into a wingless state and running along the ground resolved to capture him or perish in the attempt he closed with the bustard but the bustard who had formed a counter-resolution that he should do neither threw him stunned him and was last seen making off due west this weird man at that stage of metempsychosis may have been a sleep-walker or an enthusiast or a robber but i awoke one night to find him in the dark at my bedside repeating the athanasian creed in a terrific voice i paid my bill next day and retired from the county with all possible precipitation that was not a commonplace story which worked itself out at a little inn in switzerland while i was staying there it was a very homely place in a village of one narrow zigzag street among mountains and you went in at the main door through the cow-house and among the mules and the dogs and the fowls before ascending a great bare staircase to the rooms which were all of unpainted wood without plastering or papering like rough packing-cases outside there was nothing but the straggling street a little toy church with a copper-coloured steeple a pine forest a torrent mists and mountain-sides a young man belonging to this inn had disappeared eight weeks before it was winter-time and was supposed to have had some undiscovered love affair and to have gone for a soldier he had got up in the night and dropped into the village street from the loft in which he slept with another man and he had done it so quietly that his companion and fellow-labourer had heard no movement when he was awakened in the morning and they said louis where is henri they looked for him high and low in vain and gave him up now outside this inn there stood as there stood outside every dwelling in the village a stack of firewood but the stack belonging to the inn was higher than any of the rest because the inn was the richest house and burnt the most fuel it began to be noticed while they were looking high and low that a bantam cock part of the livestock of the inn put himself wonderfully out of his way to get to the top of this wood-stack and that he would stay there for hours and hours crowing until he appeared in danger of splitting himself five weeks went on six weeks and still this terrible bantam neglecting his domestic affairs was always on the top of the wood-stack crowing the very eyes out of his head by this time it was perceived that louis had become inspired with a violent animosity towards the terrible bantam and one morning he was seen by a woman who sat nursing her goiter at a little window in a gleam of sun to catch up a rough billet of wood with a great oath hurl it at the terrible bantam crowing on the woodstack and bring him down dead hereupon the woman with a sudden light in her mind stole round to the back of the woodstack and being a good climber as all those women are climbed up and soon was seen upon the summit screaming looking down the hollow within and crying seize louis the murderer ring the church bell here is the body i saw the murderer that day and i saw him as i sat by my fire at the holly tree inn and i see him now lying shackled with cords on the stable litter among the mild eyes and the smoking breath of the cows 
waiting to be taken away by the police and stared at by the fearful village. A heavy animal, the dullest animal in the stables, with a stupid head and a lumpish face, devoid of any trace of sensibility, who had been, within the knowledge of the murdered youth, an embezzler of certain small monies belonging to his master, and who had taken this hopeful mode of putting a possible accuser out of his way. All of which he confessed next day, like a sulky wretch who couldn't be troubled any more now that they had got hold of him and meant to make an end of him. I saw him once again on the day of my departure from the inn. In that canton the headsman still does his office with a sword, and I came upon this murderer sitting bound to a chair with his eyes bandaged on a scaffold in a little market-place. In that instant a great sword, loaded with quicksilver in the thick part of the blade, swept round him like a gust of wind or fire, and there was no such creature in the world. My wonder was not that he was so suddenly dispatched, but that any head was left unreaped within a radius of fifty yards of that tremendous sickle. That was a good inn, too, with the kind, cheerful landlady and the honest landlord, where I lived in the shadow of Mont Blanc, and where one of the apartments has a zoological papering on the walls, not so accurately joined, but that the elephant occasionally rejoices in a tiger's hind legs and tail while the lion puts on a trunk and tusks, and the bear, moulting, as it were, appears as to portions of himself like a leopard. I made several American friends at that inn, who all called Mont Blanc Mount Blanc, except one good-humoured gentleman of a very sociable nature, who became on such intimate terms with it that he spoke of it familiarly as Blanc, observing at breakfast, Blank looks pretty tall this morning, or considerably doubting in the courtyard in the evening whether there warn't some go-ahead naders in our country, sir, that would make out the top of blank in a couple of hours from first start now. Once I passed a fortnight at an inn in the north of England, where I was haunted by the ghost of a tremendous pie. It was a Yorkshire pie, like a fort an abandoned fort with nothing in it. But the waiter had a fixed idea that it was a point of ceremony at every meal to put the pie on the table. After some days I tried to hint, in several delicate ways, that I considered the pie done with, as, for example, by emptying fag-ends of glasses of wine into it, putting cheese-plates and spoons into it, as into a basket, putting wine-bottles into it as into a cooler, but always in vain, the pie being invariably cleaned out again and brought up as before. At last, beginning to be doubtful whether I was not the victim of a spectral illusion, and whether my health and spirits might not sink under the horrors of an imaginary pie, I cut a triangle out of it, fully as large as the musical instrument of that name in a powerful orchestra, Human provision could not have foreseen the result, but the waiter mended the pie. With some effectual species of cement he adroitly fitted the triangle in again, and I paid my reckoning and fled. 
the holly tree was getting rather dismal. I made an overland expedition beyond the screen and penetrated as far as the fourth window. Here I was driven back by stress of weather. Arrived at my winter quarters once more, I made up the fire and took another in. It was in the remotest part of Cornwall. A great annual miners' feast was being holden at the inn when I and my travelling companions presented ourselves at night among the wild crowd that were dancing before it by torchlight. We had had a breakdown in the dark on a stony morass some miles away, and I had the honour of leading one of the unharnessed post-horses. If any lady or gentleman, on perusal of the present lines, will take any very tall post-horse with his traces hanging about his legs and will conduct him by the bearing rein into the heart of a country dance of a hundred and fifty couples that lady or gentleman will then and only then form an adequate idea of the extent to which that post-horse will tread on his conductor's toes over and above which the post-horse finding three hundred people whirling about him will probably rear and also lash out with his hind legs in a manner incompatible with dignity or self-respect on his conductor's part with such little drawbacks on my usually impressive aspect i appeared at this cornish inn to the unutterable wonder of the cornish miners it was full and twenty times full and nobody could be received but the post-horse though to get rid of that noble animal was something while my fellow-travellers and i were discussing how to pass the night and so much of the next day as must intervene before the jovial blacksmith and the jovial wheelwright would be in a condition to go out on the morass and mend the coach an honest man stepped forth from the crowd and proposed his unlet floor of two rooms with supper of eggs and bacon ale and punch we joyfully accompanied him home to the strangest of clean houses where we were well entertained to the satisfaction of all parties but the novel feature of the entertainment was that our host was a chair-maker and that the chairs assigned to us were mere frames altogether without bottoms of any sort so that we passed the evening on perches nor was this the absurdest consequence for when we unbent at supper and any one of us gave way to laughter he forgot the peculiarity of his position and instantly disappeared i myself doubled up into an attitude from which self-extrication was impossible was taken out of my frame like a clown in a comic pantomime who has tumbled into a tub five times by the taper's light during the eggs and bacon the holly tree was fast reviving within me a sense of loneliness i began to feel conscious that my subject would never carry on until i was dug out i might be a week here weeks there was a story with a singular idea in it connected with an inn i once passed a night at in a picturesque old town on the welsh border in a large double-bedded room of this inn there had been a suicide committed by poison in one bed while a tired traveller slept unconscious in the other 
after that time the suicide bed was never used but the other constantly was the disused bedstead remaining in the room empty though as to all other respects in its old state the story ran that whoever slept in this room though never so entire a stranger from never so far off was invariably observed to come down in the morning with an impression that he smelt laudanum and that his mind always turned upon the subject of suicide to which whatever kind of man he might be he was certain to make some reference if he conversed with any one this went on for years until it at length induced the landlord to take the disused bedstead down and bodily burn it bed hangings and all the strange influence this was the story now changed to a fainter one but never changed afterwards the occupant of that room with occasional but very rare exceptions would come down in the morning trying to recall a forgotten dream he had had in the night the landlord on his mentioning his perplexity would suggest various commonplace subjects not one of which as he very well knew was the true subject but the moment the landlord suggested poison the traveller started and cried yes he never failed to accept that suggestion and he never recalled any more of the dream this reminiscence brought the welsh inns in general before me with the women in their round hats and the harpers with their white beards venerable but humbugs i am afraid playing outside the door while i took my dinner the transition was natural to the highland inns with the oatmeal bannocks the honey the venison steaks the trout from the loch the whisky and perhaps having the materials so temptingly at hand the athel brose once was i coming south from the scottish highlands in hot haste hoping to change quickly at the station at the bottom of a certain wild historical glen when these eyes did with mortification see the landlord come out with a telescope and sweep the whole prospect for the horses which horses were away picking up their own living and did not heave in sight under four hours having thought of the loch trout I was taken by quick association to the anglers inns of england i have assisted at innumerable feats of angling by lying in the bottom of the boat whole summer days doing nothing with the greatest perseverance which i have generally found to be as effectual towards the taking of fish as the finest tackle and the utmost science and to the pleasant white clean flower-pot decorated bedrooms of those inns overlooking the river and the ferry and the green eight and the church spire and the country bridge and to the peerless emma with the bright eyes and the pretty smile who waited bless her with a natural grace that would have converted bluebeard casting my eyes upon my holly-tree fire i next discerned among the glowing coals the pictures of a score or more of those wonderful english posting inns which we are all so sorry to have lost which were so large and so comfortable and which were such monuments of british submission to rapacity and extortion he who would see these houses pining away let him walk from basingstoke or even windsor to london by way of hounslow 
and moralize on their perishing remains the stables crumbling to dust unsettled laborers and wanderers bivouacking in the outhouses grass growing in the yards the rooms where erst so many hundred beds of down were made up let off to irish lodgers at eighteen pence a week a little ill-looking beer-shop shrinking in the tap of former days burning coach-house gates for firewood having one of its two windows bunged up as if it had received punishment in a fight with the railroad a low bandy-legged brick-making bulldog standing in the doorway what could i next see in my fire so naturally as the new railway-house of these times near the dismal country station with nothing particular on draught but cold air and damp nothing worth mentioning in the larder but new mortar and no business doing beyond a conceited affectation of luggage in the hall then i came to the inns of paris with the pretty apartment of four pieces up one hundred and seventy-five waxed stairs the privilege of ringing the bell all day long without influencing anybody's mind or body but your own and the not too much for dinner considering the price next to the provincial inns of france with the great church tower rising above the courtyard the horse-bells jingling merrily up and down the street beyond and the clocks of all descriptions in all the rooms which are never right unless taken at the precise minute when by getting exactly twelve hours too fast or too slow they unintentionally become so away i went next to the lesser roadside inns of italy where all the dirty clothes in the house not in wear are always lying in your ante-room where the mosquitoes make a raisin pudding of your face in summer and the cold bites it blue in winter where you get what you can and forget what you can't where i should again like to be boiling my tea in a pocket-handkerchief dumpling for want of a teapot so to the old palace inns and old monastery inns in towns and cities of the same bright country with their massive quadrangular staircases whence you may look from among clustering pillars high into the blue vault of heaven with their stately banqueting rooms and vast refectories with their labyrinths of ghostly bedchambers and their glimpses into gorgeous streets that have no appearance of reality or possibility so to the close little inns of the malaria districts with their pale attendants and their peculiar smell of never letting in the air so to the immense fantastic inns of venice with the cry of the gondolier below as he skims the corner the grip of the watery odours on one particular little bit of the bridge of your nose which is never released while you stay there and the great bell of st mark's cathedral tolling midnight next i put up for a minute at the restless inns upon the rhine where your going to bed no matter at what hour appears to be the toxin for everybody else's getting up and where in the table d'hote room at the end of the long table with several towers of babel on it at the other end all made of white plates 
one knot of stoutish men entirely dressed in jewels and dirt and having nothing else upon them will remain all night clinking glasses and singing about the river that flows and the grape that grows and rhine wine that beguiles and rhine woman that smiles and hi drink drink my friend and ho drink drink my brother and all the rest of it i departed thence as a matter of course to other german inns where all the eatables are sodden down to the same flavour and where the mind is disturbed by the apparition of hot puddings and boiled cherries sweet and slab at awfully unexpected periods of the repast after a draught of sparkling beer from a foaming glass jug and a glance of recognition through the windows of the student beer-houses at heidelberg and elsewhere i put out to sea for the inns of america with their four hundred beds apiece and their eight or nine hundred ladies and gentlemen at dinner every day. Again I stood in the bar-rooms thereof, taking my evening cobbler, julep, sling, or cocktail. Again I listened to my friend the general, whom I had known for five minutes, in the course of which period he had made me intimate for life with two majors, who again had made me intimate for life with three colonels, who again had made me brother to twenty-two civilians again i say i listened to my friend the general leisurely expounding the resources of the establishment as to gentlemen's morning-room sir ladies morning-room sir gentlemen's evening-room sir ladies evening-room sir ladies and gentlemen's evening reuniting room sir music-room sir reading-room sir over four hundred sleeping-rooms sir and the entire planned and finited within twelve calendar months from the first clearing off of the old encumbrances on the plot at a cost of five hundred thousand dollars sir again i found as to my individual way of thinking that the greater the more gorgeous and the more dolorous the establishment was the less desirable it was nevertheless again i drank my cobbler julep sling or cocktail in all good will to my friend the general and my friends the majors colonels and civilians all full well knowing that whatever little motes my beamy eyes may have descried in theirs they belong to a kind generous large-hearted and great people i had been going on lately at a quick pace to keep my solitude out of my mind but here i broke down for good and gave up the subject what was i to do what was to become of me into what extremity was i submissively to sink supposing that like baron trenck i looked out for a mouse or spider and found one and beguiled my imprisonment by training it even that might be dangerous with a view to the future i might be so far gone when the road did come to be cut through the snow that on my way forth i might burst into tears and beseech like the prisoner who was released in his old age from the bastille to be taken back again to the five windows the ten curtains and the sinuous drapery a desperate idea came into my head under any other circumstances i should have rejected it 
but in the strait at which I was I held it fast. Could I so far overcome the inherent bashfulness which withheld me from the landlord's table and the company I might find there, as to call up the boots, and ask him to take a chair and something in a liquid form, and talk to me? I could, I would, I did. End of The Holly Tree, First Branch, Myself, by Charles Dickens The Holly Tree, Second Branch, The Boots. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1. The Holly Tree, Second Branch, The Boots, by Charles Dickens. Where had he been in his time, he repeated, when I asked him the question. Lord, he had been everywhere. And what had he been? Bless you, he had been everything you could mention, almost. Seen a good deal? Why, of course he had. I should say so, he could assure me, if I only knew about a twentieth part of what had come in his way. Why, it would be easier for him, he expected, to tell what he hadn't seen than what he had. Ah, a deal it would. What was the curiousest thing he had seen? Well, he didn't know. He couldn't momently name what was the curiousest thing he had seen, unless it was a unicorn, and he see him once at a fair. But supposing a young gentleman not eight-year-old was to run away with a fine young woman of seven, might I think that a queer start? certainly then that was a start as he himself had had his blessed eyes on and he had cleaned the shoes they run away in and they were so little that he couldn't get his hand into em master harry warmer's father you see he lived at the elmses down away by shooter's hill there six or seven miles from lunnon he was a gentleman of spirit and good-looking and held his head up when he walked and had what you may call fire about him he wrote poetry and he rode and he ran and he cricketed and he danced and he acted and he done it all equally beautiful he was uncommon proud of master harry as was his only child but he didn't spoil him neither he was a gentleman that had a will of his own and a eye of his own and that would be minded consequently though he made quite a companion of the fine bright boy and was delighted to see him so fond of reading his fairy books and was never tired of hearing him say my name is norval or hearing him sing his songs about young may moons his beaming love and when he as adores thee has left but the name and that still he kept the command over the child and the child was a child and it's to be wished more of em was how did boots happen to know all this why through being under gardener of course he couldn't be under gardener and be always about in the summer time near the windows on the lawn mowing and sweeping and weeding and pruning and this and that without getting acquainted with the ways of the family 
even supposing master harry hadn't come to him one morning early and said cobbs how should you spell nora if you was asked and then began cutting it in print all over the fence he couldn't say he had taken particular notice of children before that but really it was pretty to see them two mites a-going about the place together deep in love and the courage of the boy bless your soul he'd have throwed off his little hat and tucked up his little sleeves and gone in at a lion he would if they had happened to meet one and she had been frightened of him one day he stops along with her where boots was hoeing weeds in the gravel and says speaking up cobbs he says i like you do you sir i'm proud to hear it yes i do cobbs why do i like you do you think cobbs don't know master harry i'm sure because nora likes you cobbs indeed sir that's very gratifying gratifying cobbs it's better than millions of the brightest diamonds to be liked by nora certainly sir you're going away ain't you cobbs yes sir would you like another situation cobbs well sir i shouldn't object if it was a good inn then cobbs says he you shall be our head gardener when we are married and he tucks her in her little sky-blue mantle under his arm and walks away boots could assure me that it was better than a picture and equal to a play to see them babies with their long bright curling hair their sparkling eyes and their beautiful light tread a-rambling about the garden deep in love boots was of opinion that the birds believed they was birds and kept up with em singing to please em sometimes they would creep under the tulip-tree and would sit there with their arms round one another's necks and their soft cheeks touching a-reading about the prince and the dragon and the good and bad enchanters and the king's fair daughter sometimes he would hear them planning about having a house in a forest keeping bees and a cow and living entirely on milk and honey once he came upon them by the pond and heard master harry say adorable nora kiss me and say you love me to distraction or i'll jump in head foremost and boots made no question he would have done it if she hadn't complied on the whole boots said it had a tendency to make him feel as if he was in love himself only he didn't exactly know who is cobbs said master harry one evening when cobbs was watering the flowers i am going on a visit this present midsummer to my grandmamma's at york are you indeed sir i hope you'll have a pleasant time i am going into yorkshire myself when i leave here are you going to your grandmamma's cobbs no sir i haven't got such a thing not as a grandmamma cobbs no sir the boy looked on at the watering of the flowers for a little while and then said i shall be very glad indeed to go cobbs nora's going you'll be all right then sir says cobbs with your beautiful sweetheart by your side cobbs returned the boy flushing i never let anybody joke about it when i can prevent them it wasn't a joke sir says cobbs with humility wasn't so meant i am glad of that cobbs because i like you you know and you're going to live with us 
cobs sir what do you think my grandmamma gives me when i go down there i couldn't so much as make a guess sir a bank of england five pound note cobs oh, says cobs that's a spanking sum of money master harry a person could do a good deal with such a sum of money as that couldn't a person cobs i believe you sir cobs said the boy i'll tell you a secret at nora's house they have been joking her about me and pretending to laugh at our being engaged pretending to make game of it cobs such sir says cobs is the depravity of human nature the boy looking exactly like his father stood for a few minutes with his glowing face towards the sunset and then departed with good night cobs i'm going in if i was to ask boots how it happened that he was a-going to leave that place just at that present time well he couldn't rightly answer me he did suppose he might have stayed there till now if he had been any ways inclined but you see he was younger then and he wanted change that's what he wanted change mr warmers he said to him when he gave him notice of his intentions to leave cobbs he says have you anything to complain of i make the inquiry because if i find that any of my people really has anything to complain of i wish to make it right if i can no sir says cobbs thanking you sir i find myself as well situated here as i could hope to be anywheres the truth is sir that i'm a-going to seek my fortune oh indeed cobbs he says i hope you may find it and boots could assure me which he did touching his hair with his boot-jack as a salute in the way of his present calling that he hadn't found it yet well sir boots left the elmses when his time was up and master harry he went down to the old ladies at york which old lady would have given that child the teeth out of her head if she had had any she was so wrapped up in him what does that infant do for infant you may call him and be within the mark but cut away from that old lady's with his nora on a expedition to go to gretna green and be married sir boots was at this identical holly tree inn having left it several times since to better himself but always come back through one thing or another when one summer afternoon the coach drives up and out of the coach gets them two children the guard says to our governor i don't quite make out these little passengers but the young gentleman's words was that they was to be brought here the young gentleman gets out hands his lady out gives the guard something for himself says to our governor we're to stop here to-night please sitting-room and two bedrooms will be required chops and cherry pudding for two and tucks her in her sky-blue mantle under his arm and walks into the house much bolder than brass boots leaves me to judge what the amazement of that establishment was when these two tiny creatures all alone by themselves was marched into the angel much more so when he who had seen them without their seeing him give the governor his views of the expedition they was upon cobbs says the governor if this is so i must set off myself to york and quiet their friends minds in which case you must keep your eye upon em and humour em till i come back 
but before i take these measures cobbs i should wish you to find from themselves whether your opinion is correct sir to you says cobbs that shall be done directly so boots goes upstairs to the angel and there he finds master harry on a enormous sofa immense at any time but looking like the great bed of ware compared with him a drying the eyes of miss nora with his pocket handkerchief their little legs was entirely off the ground of course and it really is not possible for boots to express to me how small them children looked it's cobbs it's cobbs cries master harry and comes running to him and catching hold of his hand miss nora comes running to him on t'other side and catching hold of his t'other hand and they both jump for joy i see you're getting out sir says cobbs i thought it was you i thought i couldn't be mistaken in your height and figure uh, what's the object of your journey sir matrimonial we are going to be married cobbs at gretna green returned the boy we have run away on purpose nora has been in rather low spirits cobbs but she'll be happy now we have found you to be our friend thank you sir and thank you miss says cobbs for your good opinion uh, did you bring any luggage with you sir if i will believe boots when he gives me his word and honour upon it the lady had got a parasol a smelling bottle a round and a half of cold buttered toast eight peppermint drops and a hairbrush seemingly a doll's the gentleman had got about half a dozen yards of string a knife three or four sheets of writing paper folded up surprising small a orange and a chaney mug with his name upon it what may be the exact nature of your plan sir says cobbs to go on replied the boy which the courage of that boy was something wonderful in the morning and be married to-morrow just so sir says cobbs would it meet your view sir if i was to accompany you when cobbs said this they both jumped for joy again and cried out oh yes yes cobbs yes well sir says cobbs if you will excuse my having the freedom to give an opinion what i should recommend would be this i'm acquainted with a pony sir which put in a phaeton that i could borrow would take you and mrs harry warmers junior myself driving if you approved to the end of your journey in a very short space of time i am not altogether sure sir that this pony will be at liberty to-morrow but even if you had to wait over to-morrow for him it might be worth your while as to the small account here sir in case you was to find yourself running at all short that don't signify because i'm a part proprietor of this inn and it could stand over boots assures me that when they clapped their hands and jumped for joy again and called him good cobbs and dear cobbs and bent across him to kiss one another in the delight of their confiding hearts he felt himself the meanest rascal for deceiving em that ever was born is there anything you want just at present sir says cobbs mortally ashamed of himself we should like some cakes after dinner answered master harry folding his arms putting out one leg and looking straight at him and two apples and jam 
with dinner we should like to have toast and water but nora has always been accustomed to half a glass of currant wine at dessert and so have i it shall be ordered at the bar sir says cobbs and away he went boots has the feeling as fresh upon him at this minute of speaking as he had then that he would far rather have had it out in half a dozen rounds with the governor than have combined with him and that he wished with all his heart there was any impossible place where those two babies could make an impossible marriage and live impossibly happy ever afterwards however as it couldn't be he went into the governor's plans and the governor set off for york in half an hour the way in which the women of that house without exception every one of them married and single took to that boy when they heard the story boots considers surprising it was as much as he could do to keep em from dashing into the room and kissing him they climbed up all sorts of places at the risk of their lives to look at him through a pane of glass they was seven deep at the keyhole they was out of their minds about him and his bold spirit in the evening boots went into the room to see how the runaway couple was getting on the gentleman was on the window-seat supporting the lady in his arms she had tears upon her face and was lying very tired and half asleep with her head upon his shoulder mrs harry warmer's junior fatigued sir says cobbs yes she is tired cobbs but she is not used to be away from home and she has been in low spirits again cobbs do you think you could bring a biff in please i ask your pardon sir says cobbs what was it you i think a norfolk biffin would rouse her cobbs she is very fond of them boots withdrew in search of the required restorative and when he brought it in the gentleman handed it to the lady and fed her with a spoon and took a little himself the lady being heavy with sleep and rather cross uh, what should you think sir says cobbs of a chamber candlestick the gentleman approved the chambermaid went first up the great staircase the lady in her sky-blue mantle followed gallantly escorted by the gentleman the gentleman embraced her at her door and retired to his own apartment where boots softly locked him up boots couldn't but feel with increased acuteness what a base deceiver he was when they consulted him at breakfast they had ordered sweet milk and water and toast and currant jelly overnight about the pony it really was as much as he could do he don't mind confessing to me to look them two young things in the face and think what a wicked old father of lies he had grown up to be howsomever he went on a lying like a trojan about the pony he told them that it did so unfortunately happen that the pony was half clipped you see and that he couldn't be taken out in that state for fear it should strike to his inside but that he'd be finished clipping in the course of the day and that to-morrow morning at eight o'clock the phaeton would be ready boots's view of the whole case looking back on it in my room is that mrs harry warmer's junior was beginning to give in she hadn't had her hair curled when she went to bed and she didn't seem quite up to brushing it herself and it's getting in her eyes put her out but nothing put out master harry he sat behind his breakfast cup a-tearing away at the jelly as if he had been his own father 
after breakfast boots is inclined to consider that they drawed soldiers at least he knows that many such were found in the fireplace all on horseback in the course of the morning master harry rang the bell it was surprising how that there boy did carry on and said in a sprightly way cobbs is there any good walks in this neighbourhood yes sir says cobbs there's love lane get out with you cobbs that was that there boy's expression you're joking begging your pardon sir says cobbs there really is love lane and a pleasant walk it is and proud shall i be to show it to yourself and mrs harry warmers junior nora dear said master harry this is curious we really ought to see love lane put on your bonnet my sweetest darling and we will go there with cobbs boots leaves me to judge what a beast he felt himself to be when that young pair told him as they all three jogged along together that they had made up their minds to give him two thousand guineas a year as head gardener on accounts of his being so true a friend to em boots could have wished at the moment that the earth would have opened and swallowed him up he felt so mean with their beaming eyes a-looking at him and believing him well sir he turned the conversation as well as he could and he took em down love lane to the water meadows and there master harry would have drowned himself in half a moment more a-getting out a water lily for her but nothing daunted that boy well sir they was tired out all being so new and strange to em they was tired as tired could be and they laid down on a bank of daisies like the children in the wood leastways meadows and fell asleep boots don't know perhaps i do but never mind it don't signify either way why it made a man fit to make a fool of himself to see them two pretty babies a lying there in the clear still sunny day not dreaming half so hard when they was asleep as they done when they was awake but lord when you come to think of yourself you know and what a game you've been up to ever since you was in your own cradle and what a poor sort of a chap you are and how it's always either yesterday with you or else to-morrow and never to-day that's where it is well sir they woke up at last and then one thing was getting pretty clear to boots namely that mrs harry warmers's junior's temper was on the move when master harry took her round the waist she said he teased her so and when he says nora my young may moon your harry tease you she tells him yes and i want to go home a boiled fowl and baked bread-and-butter pudding brought mrs warmers up a little but boots could have wished he must privately own to me to have seen her more sensible of the voice of love and less abandoning of herself to currents however master harry he kept up and his noble heart was as fond as ever mrs warmers turned very sleepy about dusk and began to cry therefore mrs warmers went off to bed as per yesterday and master harry ditto repeated about eleven or twelve at night comes back the governor in a chaise along with mr warmers and a elderly lady mr warmers looks amused and very serious both at once and says to our missus we are much indebted to you ma'am for your kind care of our little children which we can never sufficiently acknowledge 
Uh, pray, ma'am, where is my boy? Our missus says, uh, Cobbs has the dear child in charge, sir. Uh, Cobbs, show forty. Then he says to Cobbs, Ah, Cobbs, I am glad to see you. I understood you was here. And Cobbs says, Yes, sir. You're most obedient, sir. I may be surprised to hear Boots say it, perhaps, but Boots assures me that his heart beat like a hammer going upstairs. "'I beg your pardon, sir,' says he, while unlocking the door. "'I hope you are not angry with Master Harry, for Master Harry is a fine boy, sir, and will do you credit and honour. And Boots signifies to me that if the fine boy's father had contradicted him in the daring state of mind in which he then was, he thinks he should have fetched him a crack and taken the consequences. But Mr. Warmers only says, No, Cobbs, no, my good fellow, thank you. And the door being opened goes in. Boots goes in too, holding the light, and he sees Mr. Warmers go up to the bedside, bend gently down and kiss the little sleeping face. Then he stands looking at it for a minute. Looking wonderfully like it. They do say he ran away with Mrs. Warmers. And then he gently shakes the little shoulder. Harry, my dear boy, Harry. Master Harry starts up and looks at him. Looks at Cobbs, too. Such is the honour of that might that he looks at Cobbs to see whether he has brought him into trouble. I am not angry, my child. I only want you to dress yourself and come home. Yes, Pa. Master Harry dresses himself quickly. His breast begins to swell when he is nearly finished, and it swells more and more as he stands at last a-looking at his father, his father standing a-looking at him, the quiet image of him. Please, may I— The spirit of that little creature and the way he kept his rising tears down— "'Please, dear Pa, may I kiss Nora before I go?' "'You may, my child.' So he takes Master Harry in his hand, and Boots leads the way with the candle, and they come to that other bedroom where the elderly lady is seated by the bed, and poor little Mrs. Harry Warmer's junior is fast asleep. There the father lifts the child up to the pillow, and he lays his little face down for an instant by the little warm face of poor unconscious little Mrs. Harry Warmer's junior, and gently draws it to him, a sight so touching to the chambermaids who are peeping through the door that one of them calls out, "'It's a shame to part em. But this chambermaid was always, as Boots informs me, a soft-hearted one. Not that there was any harm in that girl, far from it. Finally, Boots says, that's all about it. Mr. Warmers drove away in the chaise, having hold of Master Harry's hand. The elderly lady and Mrs. Harry Warmers, Jr., that was never to be, she married a captain long afterwards and died in India, went off next day. In conclusion, Boots put it to me whether I hold with him in two opinions. Firstly, that there are not many couples on their way to be married who are half as innocent of guile as those two children. Secondly, that it would be a jolly good thing for a great many couples on their way to be married if they could only be stopped in time and brought back separately. 
End of the Holly Tree, Second Branch, The Boots The Holly Tree, Third Branch, The Bill This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1 the Holly Tree Third Branch, The Bill, by Charles Dickens I had been snowed up a whole week. The time had hung so lightly on my hands that I should have been in great doubt of the fact, but for a piece of documentary evidence that lay upon my table. The road had been dug out of the snow on the previous day, and the document in question was my bill. It testified emphatically to my having eaten and drunk and warmed myself and slept among the sheltering branches of the holly tree seven days and nights. I had yesterday allowed the road twenty-four hours to improve itself, finding that I required that additional margin of time for the completion of my task. I had ordered my bill to be upon the table and a chaise to be at the door at eight o'clock tomorrow evening. It was eight o'clock tomorrow evening when I buckled up my travelling writing-desk in its leather case, paid my bill, and got on my warm coats and wrappers. Of course, no time now remained for my travelling on to add a frozen tear to the icicles which were doubtless hanging plentifully about the farmhouse where I had first seen Angela. What I had to do was to get across to Liverpool by the shortest open road, there to meet my heavy baggage and embark. It was quite enough to do, and I had not an hour too much time to do it in. I had taken leave of all my holly-tree friends, almost for the time being of my bashfulness too, and was standing for half a minute at the inn door, watching the ostler, as he took another turn at the cord which tied my portmanteau on the chaise, when I saw lamps coming down towards the holly-tree. The road was so padded with snow that no wheels were audible, but all of us who were standing at the inn door saw lamps coming on, and at a lively rate, too, between the walls of snow that had been heaped up on either side of the track. The chambermaid instantly divined how the case stood, and called to the ostler, "'Tom, this is a Gretna job!' The ostler, knowing that her sex instinctively scented a marriage or anything in that direction, rushed up the yard, bawling, "'Next four out!' and in a moment the whole establishment was thrown into commotion. I had a melancholy interest in seeing the happy man who loved and was beloved, and therefore, instead of driving off at once, I remained at the inn door when the fugitives drove up. A bright-eyed fellow, muffled in a mantle, jumped out so briskly that he almost overthrew me. He turned to apologise, and, by heaven, it was Edwin. "'Charlie,' said he, recoiling, "'gracious powers, what do you do here?' "'Edwin,' said I, recoiling, "'gracious powers, what do you do here?' I struck my forehead as I said it and an insupportable blaze of light seemed to shoot before my eyes. He hurried me into the little parlour, always kept with a slow fire in it and no poker, where posting company waited while their horses were putting to, 
and shutting the door said charlie forgive me edwin i returned was this well when i loved her so dearly when i had garnered up my heart so long i could say no more he was shocked when he saw how moved i was and made the cruel observation that he had not thought i should have taken it so much to heart i looked at him i reproached him no more but i looked at him my dear dear charlie said he don't think ill of me i beseech you i know you have a right to my utmost confidence and believe me you have ever had it until now i abhor secrecy its meanness is intolerable to me but i and my dear girl have observed it for your sake he and his dear girl it steeled me you have observed it for my sake sir said i wondering how his frank face could face it out so yes and angela's said he i found the room reeling round in an uncertain way like a labouring humming-top explain yourself said i holding on by one hand to an armchair dear old darling charlie returned edwin in his cordial manner consider when you were going on so happily with angela why should i compromise you with the old gentleman by making you a party to our engagement and after he had declined my proposals to our secret intention surely it was better that you should be able honourably to say he never took counsel with me never told me never breathed a word of it if angela suspected it and showed me all the favour and support she could god bless her for a precious creature and a priceless wife i couldn't help that neither i nor emmeline ever told her any more than we told you and for the same good reason charlie trust me for the same good reason and no other upon earth emmeline was angela's cousin lived with her had been brought up with her was her father's ward had property emmeline is in the chaise my dear edwin said i embracing him with the greatest affection my good fellow said he do you suppose i should be going to gretna green without her i ran out with edwin i opened the chaise door i took emmeline in my arms i folded her to my heart she was wrapped in soft white fur like the snowy landscape but was warm and young and lovely i put their leaders to with my own hands i gave the boys a five-pound note apiece i cheered them as they drove away i drove the other way myself as hard as i could pelt i never went to liverpool i never went to america i went straight back to london and i married angela i have never until this time even to her disclosed the secret of my character and the mistrust and the mistaken journey into which it led me when she and they and our eight children and their seven i mean edwin and emmeline's whose oldest girl is old enough now to wear white for herself and to look very like her mother in it come to read these pages as of course they will i shall hardly fail to be found out at last never mind i can bear it i began at the holly tree by idle accident 
to associate the Christmas time of year with human interest, and with some inquiry into, and some care for, the lives of those by whom I find myself surrounded. I hope that I am none the worse for it, and that no one near me or afar off is the worse for it. And I say, may the green holly tree flourish, striking its roots deep into our English ground, and having its germinating qualities carried by the birds of heaven all over the world. End of the Holly Tree Third Branch The Bill End of the Charles Dickens 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 1